0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, I've worked there for about the past decade now, so I can really attest to the quality of the work that they do. Uh, They work predominantly with the plant medicine ayahuasca, working in the lineage of the Shipibo people. Um, There are a group of people who have a long history of working with these uh, very sacred medicinal plants. And the temple runs 12 day workshops, six ceremonies, working with four healers or doctors, um, two to three facilitators, which are kind of like the bridge between the guests and the healers. Uh, there's massage people, bone doctors, uh, pre ceremony yoga teacher. Um, And really just an amazing uh, support staff uh, from the moment that they're screening people, um, when they come down, seeing what they need to be working on, what they're looking for, all the way through the process and then through the integration process that follows the workshop. So if you're interested in working with Ayahuasca, uh, it's an amazing place to go. You can check out more information at their website at templeofthewayoflight.org. There'll be a link in the show notes to that. Um, Also, this episode is being brought to you by Ecstatic Dance Online, which is an online transformational dance experience brought to you through the magic of Zoom. Uh, It was founded by my friend Rafael and uh, his partner Elena Pashnova. And they say in one hour, 45 minutes, you'll receive a short but potent opening ceremony followed by an hour of ecstasy inducing expertly crafted DJ set finished with a closing integration and friendly open space for community and sharing. Each week, the dance ceremony takes on a new and interesting theme. They bring in a variety of guest DJs from around the world, and you'll get a chance to hear different genres of music in an exciting tempo to, sh- to stoke your inner alchemical fire. <clears throat> uh, Raphael is a certified ecstatic dance DJ from Canada who's a dancer himself. He focuses on the importance of the inner work and in processing emotions and feelings, and guides in the healing process with his music. And Elena is a passionate dancer and a true nomad. She brings her vast ecstatic dance experience, love of life, and skill as a certified dance movement therapist to the opening and closing settings. Uh, so if you'd like more information on that, uh, I'll also put a link in the show notes to that. And then finally, uh, myself and my colleague Morav Artsy, who I interviewed, I believe, in episode 28, are continuing to run dietas here in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Uh, the dieta is one of the traditional... Um, ways or processes in which people begin to experience the the learning and the healing of particular plants through a process of of isolation of fasting of meditation uh, and through the ingestion of particular plants uh, working on particular things so it's a really amazing opportunity if one is interested in dieting or going deeper into the world of plant work uh, working with myself and marav uh, working in the traditions we've been trained in Um, we ran a diet in March and that one is finished now and we're starting up a new one uh, May 1st and that runs all the month of May Uh, and then we'll also be doing a second one in September Uh, and there may be another one following that as well um, and potentially in some different places in the world. So, if you'd like more information on that, uh, you can look at the interview I did with Morav. Also, uh, I did a talk on diets. I did another talk on tobacco. Um, and then you can check out my website at nicotiana rustica.org and Morav's site at tobaccodiets.com. And there'll be a link uh, to both of those in the show notes. <clears throat> uh, my guest today is my friend Carrie Moran. Um, I met Carrie working at the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, She originally came down as uh, um, one of the programs we are running is where it takes working with uh, plant medicine and integrating it with other approaches, things like meditation. Uh, yoga, self-inquiry, dance, um, and she was one of the teachers for that. And she's a really interesting woman. Um, She has a a background in Tibetan Buddhism, in psychotherapy, now psychedelic-assisted therapy, and... really a lot of experience working with a lot of these sacred plant medicines. So, uh, It was a really um, good conversation for me. We, we got to connect a lot more deeply, learn more about her story. It was quite personal in many ways as well. Um, And she just has a beautiful ability to draw on all of these different practices, and and I think to to really get to the root and and the similarities of what these things are pointing towards. So I think and hope you guys will really enjoy this conversation with Carrie. Um, As always, if you're able to support this podcast, uh, Patreon is a a really beautiful option. It's a subscription service, and for as little as a dollar a month and upwards, you can subscribe. And with that, you get back... um, Really nice added benefits, things like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. So that's a really big help to me to continue to be able to do this podcast and to bring on these guests. Uh, To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I I really appreciate it. There's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. There'll also be a link in the show notes to that. And then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube uh, channel, Universe Within Podcast uh, YouTube channel, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell and liking the video. Uh, that's a really big help with the algorithms. Feel free to leave any comments, questions in the comments section. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help with the algorithms for the audio version. So that's it. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Carrie. I would say let's start with some of your background. So we we met. Uh, we were working together at the, the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, I think I think you came down. You were maybe part of the the deep immersion, which is like a longer program. And I think you were teaching at the time. Was mm-hmm. the first time I met you. Mm-hmm. And I think you were doing some maybe integration work with the temple um not
1: integration let's not say i did integration
0: work okay (laughs) (laughs) but you were teaching i was teaching
1: at the deep immersion program and we've met we may have met in october 2015 if you were around then because that
0: was the first time i came to the temple i know it's been a long time i'm I'm kind of bad with timelines but yeah
1: (laughs) anyway we met we met at the temple around then yes and i did teach there for like a year or something
0: Yeah. So I know, where were you teaching? You were teaching, like, mindfulness and meditation?
1: Well, the context of uh, the deep immersion is there's lots of room to teach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there were things on mindfulness and embodiment and also emotions, and I had a dance class going, (laughs) (laughs) ecstatic dance and astrology, you know, so all sorts of things that can help complement people's experience
0: right yeah so I I remember when I met you 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 seem very kind of knowledgeable or immersed in, in also Buddhist philosophy and and I found that very interesting I also just spoke with a Mihao today uh oh and he, I've
2: been wondering about <laughs> him how is he? <laughs> he
0: he sends his love he seems like he's doing really well oh, um I mean, but but he just really wanted me to say thank you on behalf of him to you because you you really helped to open him up to, to yeah, kind of that path Also I gave him
1: possibilities oh that's so great wow. yeah Good. Yeah, he's still it's, in
0: Poland. He's still in Poland. Yeah, okay, yeah. I tried to convince him to come on, but he's he's he, got to think about it. They need it a little. another <laughs> permaculture
1: <personal laughs> coordinator, but I don't think he's <laughs>
0: going to do that. Yeah. So maybe just a, a bit about your background. Um, you, you, I know you're you're from the U.S., but you you spent a long time in Asia. So what? Who's Carrie? Like, how did how did she come to to be doing what she's doing, and and what eventually led you to to the Amazon where we met for the first time? Sure. that's a uh big question that's a big question
1: yeah (laughs) uh so where would i start with that uh i would say i think i've been fortunate enough to have several lifetimes in this body already (laughs) at least two three four distinct ones Mm. And in my 20s and 30s, I spent uh, 14 years in Asia, I lived in China, and then I moved to Nepal and lived in Kathmandu Mm. for 13 years, I think. Not planning any of this, it just happened beautifully. Mm -hmm. But... uh,
0: And what what year was that? Not to try and guess your age or anything, but just for context of... I went to
1: China in 84. Wow. Uh And I came back to the States in 98. I mean, to live, obviously, I wasn't solidly out of my country for 14 years, but, yeah. yeah. So, um...
0: So it would have been a big kind of time for change in in China, too, A lot was going on. That was really interesting, to be there in
1: 84, right after the Cultural Revolution, just Mm -hmm. kind of dissipated, because there was so much trauma there. I mean, there still is, it's just all covered up, from the Cultural Revolution, and... I mean, you know about a bit about that, yeah. The massive overturning of everything, of every aspect of society.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, my husband and I were teaching English there, one of the first uh, batches of American teachers to be sent there.
2: Mm.
1: And our fellow teachers, the Chinese teachers, would tell us stories about having to kneel on broken glass with a dunce cap on, you know, being publicly repudiated. And mm-hmm. it was all just like, <laughs> that happened, <laughs> you know, very nervous laughter. Yeah. But uh, China has changed so much since then. Obviously, mm-hmm. every time I go back, it's like I don't recognize the places I was
0: there. It was really interesting. I, I remember something very distinctly. I, I, I was spending some time in China and I was... Um, i 'd been curious to learn tai Chi and and yeah. so I was in a like a Tai Chi academy in Wuhan and uh it was very fascinating because i I remember really distinctly uh, I think there was one other foreign guy there he's an english guy and and me, and everyone else was chinese and it, they would ask like these questions like like "How did you find this place uh you know but they, they were very like happy that I was there and, yeah. Because they really wanted to share this knowledge. And, and they were like, how did you hear about Tai Chi? And I was like, oh, well, you know, in the U.S., there's also people who practice. And and they were like, no. <laughs> right. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, no, no, Tai Chi is Chinese. It comes from here. It, it's not practiced anywhere else. <laughs> and I was like, no, like, there, there's... There are people practicing, I mean, we have a huge Chinese population in the U.S. and people practice, we're like, no, no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what year I were mean, you there? Uh,
0: this would have been 2007, maybe, something like that. Yeah. Huh. But it was just so strange. Like, they, it was like they couldn't comprehend that there was something, uh, beyond. something beyond China. Indeed. It was, it was very, <laughs> very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so so you're, you're you're teaching English in in China.
1: Uh, my husband got a job teaching English in Nepal. Let's go to Kathmandu. It sounds like a cool place. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that was the depth of the motivation. <laughs> but the forces at play were deeper too, you know. So right before we went to Kathmandu, Tibet opened up for the first time to foreigners. This was in mm. the summer of 1985. And we got to journey across Tibet on the overland on the way to Nepal. And it just touched me so much, you know, the quality of the Tibetan people, their devotion to the Dalai Lama, to the Buddha Dharma, you know, Mm. and the way that had been repressed and suppressed by the Chinese for so many years, but their faith was still so strong. Mm. And I saw even in that first trip through there, that first journey through there, that, wow, these people have something that I want, you know they're so balanced. They're so grounded. They tell great dirty jokes <laughs> or really bad dirty jokes. I mean, but they're very earthy. Yeah. But their hearts are also open, and they're connected to something bigger in a way that's just unshakable. So that was kind of my first contact with Tibetan Buddhism, hmm. which ended up being a big thing waiting for us, for me in uh, Nepal and Kathmandu, because of all the places in the world to study Tibetan Buddhism. Actually, Kathmandu's. Is or at least was probably the most diverse and the biggest.
0: And for people who aren't familiar with that, is that because there, there's a big uh, like refugee population? in Yeah, in the they, they
1: mostly assimilated. You know, mm-hmm. the the Tibetan diaspora was started in the '50s when the Chinese came in and invaded. You know, many Tibetans fled to India along with the Dalai Lama, and there's communities there. But Kathmandu. Which has a long history of connection with Tibet anyway on the trade routes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: has also uh, several big Tibetan communities, and they're pretty. I they wouldn't you know I wouldn't call them refugees anymore. They're displaced persons certainly, but they've created mm-hmm. lives and businesses and built many many monasteries and many uh, great teachers and lamas were living around Boda Stupa at the time. I don't know if you've heard of Boda Nath. Mm-hmm. It's the big big stupa on the outskirts of Kathmandu. Um, created with Tibetan support, I think, I don't know, 700, 1,000 years ago. Hmm. So, big Tibetan community there. We ended up living there, still not knowing we were Buddhists. <laughs> Took a few years to get the message, but eventually I did connect um, with the Dharma in a way of just recognizing, yeah, there's something here for me. I want to learn this. I want to study this. I want to take refuge, become a Buddhist. And treat this as my spiritual path and practice. So,
0: And what was the calling for you? Like, what what stood out that made you drawn to that?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, one, I'd always been... I like to say I'm a seeker, <laughs> but I'm also a finder. <laughs> but I've been turning into spiritual things since I was a child, looking for spirituality in the Catholic Church where I was raised. But sadly, it never spoke to me, even though I sought very sincerely I did not find in that domain so reading spiritual books and practicing yoga from the time I was 14 I don't know what made me go down to the library and check out a yoga book <laughs> mm. <laughs> and teach myself in my bedroom but that's you know there was a calling there was an affinity towards these things and reading Henry James and Aldous Huxley and exploring psychedelics from a very early age you know just knowing that there's more there's more mm. and I want to connect with that more So partly uh, Tibetan Buddhism in particular spoke to that, and another part was what I told you about traveling in Tibet, because I went back every summer for the next, I don't know, three, four years and spent months Mm. traveling with Tibetans and seeing uh, the quality of their being, and again, just feeling so connected with it, so impressed by it, so much like, yeah, this is good. Mm. So that kind of personal connection, too.
0: And how would uh, this is another big question, but how would you? Because I, I feel like Buddhism is is something much like yoga; it's become part of the the, the everyday vernacular of people. Um, but how would how would you describe Buddhism?
1: Yeah. Ah, uh, so I practice in the Tibetan, the Vajrayana tradition, in particular, Kaju Nyingma. My teachers are belong to that those lineages. There's different flavors. <laughs> uh so some of the main underpinnings of that that I've learned and practice are that all beings have Buddha nature, okay? All sentient beings have this little spark of consciousness. You call it Buddha nature. It's innately pure, completely unobscured, completely enlightened in itself, right? And yet, for uh, for humans, who are quite fortunate to be in a precious human body, so we can work with this Buddha nature, it gets covered up by obscurations, by, of course, you know, trauma, emotions, but also just by our conceptual mind, conceptual thought covers up that spark. So part of practice, part of meditation practice is just learning to work with conceptual mind in a way that helps it start to release. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of your concepts, you still think, you still operate in the world. But you do it in a way that doesn't require so much grasping
2: Mm.
1: and thinking that that's all there is. Yeah? And when you practice, you sit on your cushion, and in the Dzogchen tradition, you really just relax. Deeply, deeply, deeply relax into the clarity of awareness and the uh, warmth of the heart that is your true nature. And I just... For a refugee from Judeo-Christian tradition, like me, or many people I know, that whole approach is just so simple, so practical, so profound. It's not about purifying your sins or begging God for forgiveness or having an intermediary. It's just, here's my awareness. How can I become more and more and more relaxed and aware in that state?
0: Right. Mm -hmm. I was listening to an interesting conversation today. It was it was more related actually to politics, but, but they were, they were speaking about, I mean, I guess you could call it ontology, like the nature of being. And, Mm. and one of the things they were kind of debating about was the nature of reality. And, you know, because it was interesting what you said, that there's more, I forget the exact way you said it, but there's more to hear than maybe we think. Um,
1: And doesn't plant medicine show us that too?
0: Yeah. (laughs) so from a buddhist perspective do you have a sense of like what that thought is like what is reality because obviously so many of us we when we think of reality we think of like what we can touch and smell and taste and
3: tangible
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet you were saying that in the buddhist tradition it's pointing towards also that there's something beyond what we take to be
1: Sure. I mean, like many spiritual practices and paths, right? They generally point towards something beyond just embodied physical reality. Mm -hmm. So one way of looking at it uh, from the Tibetan perspective might be that there's relative reality, okay? We're sitting here talking, there's the sofa here, the sun's shining, you know? Uh, All this exists, yeah. But there's also ultimate reality. (laughs) And in ultimate reality... It's a very different picture. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: And that can be explored again through practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to say there's only relative and ultimate. <laughs> there's all other degrees of reality also, right? Mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhism is quite uh, flamboyant and dramatic and has a lot of room for demons and deities and spirits and, and you know, uh, ritual and color and stuff like that, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which are I guess are meant to support the mind in all in a relative reality to opening up to something more, you know.
0: And how how would you, because I, I know within the Tibetan tradition, like you know, like obviously, there was a spirituality before, the Buddha, yeah. or, however we take that, whether it's real or myth, but that that that, that introduction of of the idea of of, of Buddhism, of Buddhist thought there was the, the bone tradition yes yeah so how what is your understanding of of like how these maybe like to start like what is the bone tradition and then how how is the influence of buddhism kind of inner intermingling with that create something that seems quite special because right. tibetan buddhism does seem very distinct from maybe other paths of Buddhism that are that right. are practiced around the world,
1: right? And sometimes it doesn't have much to do with the Buddha <laughs> per mm-hmm. se, although the teachings are still there. Yeah, so Bon was the uh, indigenous practice religion. You don't want to say that spiritual practice in Tibet before Tibetan before Buddhism was introduced to it in I think the eighth century, something like that. So bon is a practice uh, that involves, it has a lot of connections with the deities of the earth, just like here. <laughs> they don't call them apus in Tibet, but <laughs> kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the uh, protectors, the um, this nature spirits, uh, all sorts of multi-layered things. It's quite a shamanic uh, path, actually, and it's still around mm-hmm. in some ways. And then when Buddhism was introduced to Tibet in the 700s or 800s, I don't know, by Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, a tantric wizard magician from India. <laughs> I love mm. this because this just so rich and juicy. Mm. Uh, he brought the Dharma to Tibet. He subdued the demons. He bound them over to serve the Dharma. This is how the story goes. So that, you know, he didn't wipe away or expunge Bon. It was more like, okay, all these local spirits are going to be enmeshed or entwined with Dharma now. And that's part of what makes Tibetan Buddhism special, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. So I
1: find it, you know, very earthy, very pagan in a way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty wild. It has a scope certainly in some lineages to deal with the dark side the shadow as well as the bright stuff it is by no means just sitting on your cushion and trying to think pure thoughts or not trying to not think at all which never works anyway (laughs) it has a great capacity to work with the emotions and the passions and embodied energy and that's part of what appeals always appeal to me mm-hmm. and again I start to find this remarkable intersection with plant medicine which we'll get to eventually in this conversation
0: but, mm-hmm. yeah one thing I always found interesting about actually let me try and open this window and make this fly out yeah
1: I don't think he left he? I think he left He got the
0: hint. Um, One thing I I found really interesting when I was there was the, I think it was Milarepa, and this idea that, you know, he was this kind of great warrior, this warlord who actually killed many, many people. And then he found the light, the calling Buddhism, and, and now he's revered. And and I think that's really interesting because we, it, for me, it seems like we're living in a time where, <laughs> you know, you were talking about this idea of like Judeo Christian thought and this idea of like sin. Um, but I think so much of, of what I see is like almost this judgment of like, you know, if you've made a mistake, yeah that's who you are now, you know, and there's no redemption. Yeah. And something I find really interesting with the story of Malarepa is, like, I mean, this guy was, like... (laughs) He was a tantric
1: magician. Yeah, yeah. He he caused the whole dining hall his evil uncle was in to collapse, and he killed 50 people like that out of Mm. revenge, you know, because he was treated so badly. yeah. Yeah. And yet he could... That's part of this path, I think, is that it involves the power to transmute. Mm-hmm. The base energies, it's alchemical in a way. Again, mm-hmm. just as plant medicine can be. To transmute the darker, heavier energies into serving... Um, you wouldn't say the divine in Buddhism, mm-hmm. <laughs> but into serving the basic nature of reality, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to benefit beings, yeah, which is a huge part of
2: the path.
0: I think I was also reading that... Um... The Dalai Lama was saying he's not going to have a successor, or that that like that that at least that part of the tradition is is kind of ending with him. Is
1: I'm not I haven't read things like that. Hmm. I may be not up to date, but I think perhaps he was just saying in an open-ended way that anything could happen. He said before he could be reborn as a woman, or um, certainly he'll be reborn out of China and Tibet proper because the political control. Did he come back? Just leave it open for a second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the same one. <laughs> um, he's made it quite clear he won't be reborn in China proper, including mm-hmm. the Tibetan Autonomous Region of China, because then China would have political tr- control over that incarnation like it has taken over other lamas, and it's not a, been a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Do you... Do you see that that tradition is still very alive, or like many indigenous or kind of older traditions? Do you do you think uh, a lot of that is being lost, or do you think there is still maybe because of the diaspora, there is there is still like
1: juice in it? Yeah, juice in it. That's that's an interesting question. And again, I, yes, I see the parallels with other indigenous traditions. Um, you know, the Tibetans say. Something like, we held on to the Dharma and the teachings too tightly. Tibet was a very closed realm, right? Mm. And so the Chinese had to come and break it open. And then it was like shaking the apple tree so that the apples rolled all over the world. Mm. The apples being the teachings, right? And uh, there's quite a huge and dynamic... Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist scene, I guess, in the United States and Europe. There's teachers, there's centers all over the world. Mm-hmm. There's a Buddhist Chorten I've been out to a few times just past Chinchero oh,
2: interesting.
1: that a, a teacher built there, or uh, his community did. So it's definitely alive and it's changing, and in some mm-hmm. ways it's changing for the better to serve modern people. In some ways, some things are being lost, perhaps. Yeah, I think he's Um, like so many indigenous traditions change is happening there's no way to avoid it you can't preserve culture in a static setting it dies like that Mm -hmm. and when you look at Tibetan Buddhism you see how it's changed throughout the centuries you know taking in bon and uh, turning you know generating new practices Uh, so I'm hopeful that it Continues to change and it serves people in the modern world. I mean, I think it does. It can, yeah.
0: That seems like a really important point, which I feel like often gets overlooked. Is exactly like you described it. Like, I mean, the the idea of entropy is essentially like correlated to death. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and yet so many people we we look to tradition as if it's static and we want it to always stay the same and never change. And yet. Mm-hmm. That's the road. But to nothing Buddhism just, right. will tell you.
1: <laughs> nothing stays the same. Everything changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was in Kathmandu in the mid '80s, I was first like you know feeling real pain at seeing old beautiful architecture being torn down or old traditions kind of starting to dissipate. Uh, and over time, I just started to realize, hey, this is the way of the world. <laughs> There's no way to stop it. You know, you want to stop all foreigners from entering Kathmandu and make a nice zone just for me? <laughs> yes, I would like that, you know, and that's not the way things go. Mm-hmm. And then beautiful things come out of those changes too and the cross-cultural pollination that can happen mm-hmm. and the new things that can be developed.
0: Yeah. So what was that process like for you of, of beginning to, to learn or to, to train? I don't know how you would describe it, but... Study
1: and practice.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, it was really good. Um, first of all, to be able to live there and go to teachings by different masters and to have connections with teachers And I don't mean, you know, I think we all have this vision, and I had this vision of, ooh, I'm going to find a special llama, and he's going to tell me I'm special. (laughs) And, you know, it's all going to be like I see in the movies or whatever. Now it's not like that, you know. But just to be able to bring your experience to somebody who knows, who's walked that path, who's further down the path, way further down the path than you are, and say, here's what I'm experiencing now. How can I continue to work with this? And he draws on his own experience, and he also draws on a millennia of traditions, many of which were written. You know, the Tibetans had a massive, uh, it's preserved in, in pages and scriptures,
2: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I was and am really grateful for that, and also for the groundedness it gave me in having a tradition I've been connected to for more than 30 years now. You know, I still consider myself a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh even though it's not necessarily at the forefront of my life right now, other things have come to the forefront, but I really really appreciate the grounding that's given me and the way it's cultivated my mind mm-hmm. to become more fluid, more flexible, more open, more peaceful, more compassionate. And when I started to work as a therapist, which is another chapter in my life, I found myself naturally drawing on everything I knew, I had learned from Dharma practice. It just was like, this is my greatest resource. So when I sit with a client or a patient, you know, it's, I would just sit like I did on the meditation cushion, you know, open, spacious, loving, see what happens. Mm. And it's been really
0: beautiful would you describe it pr- primarily as a practice of the mind
1: um, as opposed to
0: <laughs> what? the physical practice
1: it's uh... certainly a physical component you know one of the things you do uh, starting off are the, the four preliminaries, the ngondro practice you do 100,000 prostrations full prostrations on the floor which was not a good thing for my knee <laughs> but <laughs> I did them 100,000 mantra recitations, 100,000 mandala offerings, 100,000 guru, mm. uh, guru, um, guru yoga visualizations, you know. And just the practice of doing anything 100,000 times <laughs> is really going to ground you, yeah. Mm. Uh, so there are physical components to it, but obviously it's working with the mind, although not just the, you know, mind is a very tricky word, mm-hmm. and I feel like sometimes it's mistranslated. Tibetan has has many different words for aspects of the mind. We don't mm. have those in English. But uh, mind, when we say it, we tend to think of our mental, conceptual mind, right? I think from the Tibetan perspective, there's more dimensions to that, including the dimension of awareness,
0: Rigpa, mm. which is tied in with our Buddha nature. And emotions would be in that that same realm? emotions
2: would
1: be in that realm, but to tell you the truth, I did not find Buddhist practice so valuable for working with my emotions. Hmm. I think it has the capacity or the potential to, especially some of the the tantric approaches. Uh, And I think with certain teachers, they could do amazing things with that, but... um, I found working with depth psychology and then, of course, plant medicine to be really helpful in opening up my emotions and allowing them to flow. Mm. And I think there's a real easy way that Western practitioners can sit on the cushion and we just sit on our emotions. Mm. (laughs) And we sit on all, you know, all the past stuff that's buried. And we're practicing up here, but whatever's going on down here is a whole different thing. And for me, it took ayahuasca to open this up.
0: Yeah. Yeah use this word tantra that that's another word that, that I think people are familiar with but they have a very particular idea of what that means
1: <laughs> right <laughs> and what it means in the west is sexual practices that you go to a workshop and do or something right mm-hmm. uh and i'm looking at tantra which is has both buddhist and hindu components you know there's ancient indian tantra tibetan uh buddhist tantra uh It's an embodied practice that encompasses every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Every aspect. Sex, of course, it includes sex, but sex is not that big when you think about all of life, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, everything from, you know, just the, the feeling of my fingers touching, right? And getting into that sensation deeply and the waves of energy that can arise from that, you know? Eating a meal, tending to a baby, taking a walk. Doing your work, you know, all this can be encompassed in tantric practice, Mm. and it doesn't involve sexuality.
0: Why do you think the the sexuality component became so well known? Was was just that so many traditions kind of leaned more on the? I mean, I think they talk about the 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 two hands, and so maybe the more like right-handed path of like renunciation and Mm. avoiding, and there's just so much emphasis on that, like then this other tradition is coming along and saying, no, no, like, embrace everything. And <laughs>
1: I, I think two reasons. One is sex hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other is that, you know, us, we, again, and speaking of Westerners, Europeans, Americans, Australians, whatever, Judeo-Christian refugees, there uh, tends to be a split between spirituality and the physical, or spirituality and sexuality. And the tantric mm-hmm. approach can be very healing to that because it harnesses physical energies in the service of awareness Mm -hmm. or unites
0: them with awareness yeah that seems like a really interesting thing i because growing up in the u.s i mean the u.s is very open in in many ways Uh and yet you know even even in sexuality i mean uh I, i remember moving to new york and and i I was at this little bar. It was called Max Fish. It was like this this kind of old beatnik bar in the Lower East Side and uh this guy, I think his name was Taylor Meade. He he was like one of the Andy Warhol crew. And uh he would come in and uh he he said something like uh someone asked him like why why do people move to New York and I think he used a more vulgar word, which I I won't repeat on the podcast, but uh, basically to have sex, (laughs) you know, and because there was like this freedom of like, you know, being able to express yourself and, you know, sleep with whoever you want. And there was like real liberty in that. Even, I mean, the, 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 in the sixties and seventies, I mean, the the, the hippie movement, that was a big aspect was Mm -hmm. this idea of free love. Um so I mean I think on the one hand there is a lot of openness and yet there still is a lot of repression yeah. like a lo- we often refer to it as like puritanical beliefs and I I remember when I was in when I was in France it was very eye opening because you know in certain ways one could say france is maybe more closed in certain ways but i did feel that in the realm of sexuality it was far more open mm. i mean it was just you would talk about it i, mm-hmm. I, I remember i, I was I, I was renting a room from this 70 year old woman and she would talk to me about sex in the morning, you know, and really inquisitive. And I was, this is, this is so strange, you know, <laughs> so, talking to my grandmother about sex, you know, where I came from, that would never happen. Right. Um, but she was just so open about it. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, kind of that idea about um, sexuality, do you think that's, because you mentioned this idea of, you know, there often is a disconnect. Do you think that's just something that... The, like it's not it's not expressed enough and and therefore we we maybe are drawn to turn to these traditions where it's like hey like i can actually go into this to to some degree
1: i think there's a wounding at the root of our embodiment for many 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 of us i mean you just look at how people move through airports or walk you know you can see mm. certain tightness or certain patterns in a different country people move in different ways and in mm. brazil it's pretty nice (laughs) and then you go to I don't know Denver or something and it's a whole different energy right Mm -hmm. so I think there's many of us have not been fully initiated into our embodiment as humans through difficult child raising practices through the fact we're supposed to sit still and shut up in school and just do our work and be Mm -hmm. good little boys and girls you know there's not a lot of freedom or joy in the body which also drives consumer society I'll buy this it'll make me feel good you know, but you know, you live in Peru for heaven's sake or Nepal or, you know, other countries you've probably lived in too. And you see people just move differently in the world. People connect differently. People love, express love physically. I don't mean sex, but just mothers and their babies or whatever. On the colectivos, I'm seeing it all the time. The joy that a mother gets from her child. Mm. And in America, it's probably like the mom's on the phone typing and the kid's pulling on her sleeve for attention but not getting it. Mm. So there's so many levels of wounding that we carry that alienate us from our human birthright. And where was I going with this? Some of these teachings or practices can be helpful in helping us reconnect, like Tantra. And again, Tantra can be about the sensuality in every dimension of being not just mm. sexuality but that's not really talked about or known mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: when you were in tibet did did you because you you're you're speaking about this idea of like embodiment and 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 how we're raised and the culture uh, i would imagine there was this sense that the, the, the spiritual practice was very much like embodied in in the day-to-day lives of people as oh, well yeah
1: <laughs> yeah Yeah, I remember uh, traveling out to Mount Kailas. You know, it's a sacred mountain in far western Tibet, sacred (coughs) to Hindus and Buddhists. And you, pilgrims go there and they have for millennia and they go and they walk around the mountain. It takes three days. You can do it in a day, but it takes three days. So I traveled out there two years in a row and spent a lot of time there and actually ended up writing a book about it with a friend who's a photographer Mm. about Kailas. But uh, (laughs) the journey, the journey there and the journeys back, um, we'd be traveling with Tibetan pilgrims or, um, merchants, compass. and, uh, I just love the whole rhythm of life on the truck, because we're traveling in open back trucks, no roof or anything, just bouncing along the dusty road. And, uh, people spinning their prayer wheels, doing mantra very quietly, uh, and then, the minute something shifts, they put it down and they go deal with it. Time to build a fire. Time to do some gambling with the dice. <laughs> I remember uh, at one point, my, the first year I went out with my husband and he was really, really sick and he was vomiting off the side of the truck, bouncing along the road, and this guy had his feet in his lap and he was just doing the mani, just doing the, the prayer wheel and the mantra recitation, you know. So it's that kind of seamless interweaving of spirituality and life. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that touched me and still
0: does, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that seems like something that is a very kind of stark difference is that in in many of the cultures we come from, things are very compartmentalized. Like, okay, Sunday is the day for spirituality or... Two months from now is the time for my ayahuasca workshop, and, you know, that's where I'm, I'm going to deal with everything, and then <laughs> and I, I go back to my life, which is completely separate. Mm.
1: Yeah, we're encouraged to <coughs> silo things, I think, in the interest of efficiency, mm. maybe. And, again, as the disruption between the head and the heart, or... um. Mm. The head and the body, or the head and the emotions, or the head and other people—you know, there's a lot of disconnection going on, Mm. which also comes from trauma. That's how I see it. Yeah.
0: Mm. So then, what? So you're you're living in Tibet for a while, and then sorry, in in Nepal, uh, studying Tibetan Buddhism. So I guess at some point you left, because you said you, you came back you know every year for a certain amount of time.
1: Not even every year, but I wasn't gone for 14 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I left in 98,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So you were there for 14 years or something?
1: China a year, and, and Kathmandu for 13 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And what was finally the impetus to, to make that change?
1: Um, my marriage fell apart. A few years before that, it was very painful for me, I think for everybody. Our children were like five and two at the time. <laughs> it's never easy when you have small children, or rarely, right? So, But I realized it was kind of like, well, if this is going to happen, and I don't want this to happen, but if it's going to happen, then I'm going to take responsibility for my life, and I'm going to reinvent myself. And start my new life now, rather than waiting for some time in the future.
2: Mm.
1: And I'd already seen, kind of visionarily, I guess, although without plant medicine at that point, that my future direction was going to lead to me towards becoming a therapist, a psychotherapist, uh, and studying depth psychology and starting a whole new career. Because before I was a journalist, freelance journalist and writer, editor. That's what I did in Asia. Mm. So this was like a reinvention around the age of 35 to 42, let's say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, yeah, I went back to the States and uh started a graduate program at Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is really was a wonderful, wonderful place for me It emphasizes uh Carl Jung depth psychology. Mm-hmm. It was it was the reward for all this painful <laughs> destruction that had occurred before Mm. and the kids came with me and you know i just started to reinvent myself and started a new life in america but i also felt at that time i was getting the message it's time for you to bring back what you've learned everything you've learned in nepal and tibet and asia it's time for you to bring it back to your own people because i started to realize this is where i have the most leverage Mm. right this is where i can speak the most fluently these are people I understand in my country and I can frame things according to their perspective but start to show them something different too. So it was part of becoming a cultural, what's the word, bridge bridge person.
0: Bridge keeper, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And with, with psychology or, or psychotherapy, there were... Do you think that was just an extension of of your interest in Buddhism, was, like, understanding the nature of the mind and and why people are suffering, what they're struggling with?
1: I think it actually came from what happened when I was 35, which is my second child died in his sleep. We woke up and found him dead. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It was the most devastating, heartbreaking, tragic, earth-shattering event for me and for us as a family, you know? And it was through the very long process of healing from that that I started to get the feeling like I want to help other people who are going through this or something similar to this, you know, because I'm walking this path and I can share what I've learned Mm -hmm. and somehow that makes it better (laughs) what can I say? Mm -hmm. I mean what else is suffering for? (laughs) But to learn and grow and, you know, share Mm -hmm. what we've learned
0: yeah. And I know I'm asking a lot of definitions, but again, even something like psychotherapy, I think a lot of people think they, they know what that is. What, what is that for you? Like, where did that practice originate from? What is it trying to accomplish? And, and how does that, how does that look like? I mean, if someone is interested in exploring that.
1: Right. Right. And I will speak just for me is my mm-hmm. personal definition. Yeah because there's many different approaches in psychotherapy, which is really just the, the healing of the mind, of the psyche. And the psyche is not just the mental mind, but
2: everything.
1: The unconscious, the subconscious, the emotions. Um, it's a healing path, and it's a mainstream healing path in our culture, which I kind of like, mm-hmm. <laughs> to have one foot in the mainstream at least. Um, so for me, I was already so influenced by my buddhist practice and all my spiritual exploration and my early psychedelic work and all that you know that it was clear I wasn't going to be doing cognitive behavioral therapy (laughs) mainstream it was going to be something more on the fringes I guess but I've been reading Carl Jung since my early 20s I always had a book of his on my bedside table Mm. when I went to Tibet he was one of the two books I had (laughs) Mm. um and we talked about Jung the other day right and what a Magical man he was, and uh, I told you that description. Somebody had said calling him a shaman in a suit, <laughs> yeah. which I feel is true. You know, Jung went and mined the um, the ancient lost history of Europe in terms of the alchemical tradition, the astrological tradition. He retrieved things lost in the European past and brought them to the present time. He was quite an amazing man. Mm-hmm. So I was really pleased to find a program where I could study with a Jungian influence uh, and keep exploring more deeply how to work with the unconscious, how to work with dreams, how to work with symbols and images. These are all those things that really excite me and turn me on. And um, psychotherapy was one way of doing that, being a shaman in a suit, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Or a cardigan. A pantsuit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think when when a lot of people think about psychology, they they think about Freud. Um, uh-huh. how, what do you think is, is the difference between that way of working and, and the, the more Jungian approach?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, they had a connection, Freud mm-hmm. and Jung, and Jung was Freud's, I don't want to say student, but Freud was his mentor maybe for a long time, and then they had a rift over the nature of the unconscious, I think. And and Jung realized he had to go his own way because he felt so deeply that what he was experiencing had some truth in it, whereas Freud would be more like, you know, ah, that's just projection or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we had a class on Freud uh, at uh, in the program, uh, and uh, I got to really appreciate Freud <laughs> as a very deep and um, sexually motivated being. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you look at their astrological charts of the two of them, you start to see, yeah, that makes sense for Freud's personality, mm-hmm. and that makes sense for Jung's personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not much Freudian stuff around nowadays, I don't think. You know, it's mm-hmm. not; it's kind of not so popular now. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that's just because it's it, it's very niche in a way? Like it it just it it has its limits and. Yeah, I'm not I don't know to what extent it's been upgraded for the modern mind because Freud mm. was 100
1: years ago and people have changed. Um it also is a quite an investment financially and time-wise. It's mm. usually it is Freudian psychology is one way of going into the unconscious. Absolutely, and I respect that. I just I prefer ways that are maybe a little more fluid or playful <laughs> or more
0: fun. <laughs> And and when you say unconscious, wh- what do you mean by that? Because, again, that's, that's I think, a word that, that many people have very different ideas of, of what that actually means.
1: Yeah. So there's our conscious mind, the level at which we're speaking now. Uh, and that is maybe 20% of what's going on in this room in terms of energetics or perceptions that we're not aware of here, but we're still feeling. Uh, uh, the, in, the interpersonal dynamics, the stuff that we each carry from our pasts, which are buried in there. Uh, the unconscious is everything you don't know, <laughs> which is quite a lot when you think about it, right? <laughs> That's the majority of reality. <laughs> and especially everything, the personal unconscious, everything you don't know about yourself everything that happened in the past that you forgot or you shoved away because it was too much or it was so traumatic and overwhelming you just couldn't deal with it at the time, so it got buried. Or it falls into your shadow because it wasn't acceptable in the family you were growing up in. So you learn to not be that noisy person or whatever, you know? And all your, say, your joie de vivre, your vivacity or whatever, oops, got got, uh, shoved down, so you become very... What's the word? Phlegmatic, practical, Mm da-da-da. You know, when people talk about the shadow, they often think, oh, these are the bad parts of me, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they are. (laughs) But the shadow can also be bright parts of you, talents or skills that you really have that they just never have had room to develop. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the unconscious, the personal unconscious can include those dimensions, and then there's the collective unconscious that we have as humans, or as Americans say, or, you know, Peruvians have their segment of collective unconsciousness. Um, all the stuff from the past, memories, ancestors, DNA, trauma. Um, you know, you look at race in America, for example, right? There's a huge example of the collective unconscious. It's It's been carrying a lot of stuff, and some of it is coming to light, which is good, right? Mm-hmm. But it's painful, and it's difficult, and it's confusing, and often we're like, why aren't we over this yet? <laughs> it's because there's still such a huge mass of stuff down mm-hmm. there that needs to be brought into the light and seen and redeemed. And that's a process that can happen personally, collectively,
0: probably for all humans too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would an analogy then be <clears throat> like similarly to the difference between sex and gender? Like sex being the 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 un, the the individual unconscious and gender, how that's embedded within a, a collective, within a society, the the, the norms, the, the the past, the trauma.
1: Yeah. Although I think you still have a bit of biology in there, and I'm not sure where mm. that falls in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's not completely hidden for me that mm. that analogy, but I have to think about it some more. Yeah.
0: And so. Psychotherapy, in, in the, the way you are trained, it's it's a practice to, to be able to go into the unconscious and to become conscious of of, of the unconscious mm-hmm. in, in an attempt to, to, to bring those to light or to release, to heal them.
1: In an attempt to heal, in an attempt to grow, in an attempt to understand more, you know, just, um, yeah, it's a whole bunch of different practices. And it's also an attitude which I also feel is so important when one is working with plant medicine to be able to bring to a ceremony just an attitude of warmth towards oneself. If I was working with another person, I would have warmth warmth towards them in their unconscious, but you can have this inside too. Uh, warmth and curiosity and openness and non, not judging anything, just like whatever arises. This is Buddhist again. Whatever arises, it's just the display. We're just watching it. You know, let's just get... just watch the display without having to define it or fix Mm. it or put it into a box or heal it immediately. You know, Mm. just this deep, deep acceptance of whatever comes. And I found just with that attitude that um, things, the unconscious starts to warm up (laughs) and release a little more. Because if it's met with judgment or fear, you know, it's just like a person. Why would you want to hang out with somebody who is judgmental and fearful and critical of you? Mm. Be like no thanks, I don't talk with you. Mm.
0: So the, the the end goal isn't necessarily to understand it, although there there could be an understanding, but simply to to allow those things to come up because potentially they've been suppressed. That's the
1: process. That's the practice. I don't like having too tight an end goal because then that can turn into manipulation mm. and extraction, and I think there can be a whole. I would just say, colonization of the unconscious or the psyche that can happen. People can have a very extractive approach towards, I want to find out the root of my problem and get rid of it. (laughs) Mm. And that strikes me as just like, you know, coming into a country and pillaging it and mining for gold and strip mining, you know. Mm. It's not respectful to the whole environment. But the warmth is the process or the practice. And I mean, sure, you can have intentions or aspirations or goals i guess if you want of yeah i want to heal i want to release i want to understand i want to grow that can just be a big one Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it's a fascinating process let me say and it's really fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) to track your dreams you know and let your dreams speak to you get these messages from the unconscious for example or to play with intuition which is an interface between the conscious and the unconscious mind Mm -hmm. and just realize you know something (laughs) and to trust that knowing which only comes with time it takes time to
0: cultivate that that's an interesting definition I hadn't heard that before that, that intuition is the like the meeting point between the, the conscious and the unconscious
1: yeah I don't know where that came from I just said that but it mm. sounds right to me mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because it's definitely not rational conceptual mind that knows everything intuition is knowing without knowing how you know it mm. it's just a direct knowing and again this plant medicine is a, a conduit for that right
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned the idea of dreams and, and, and I, I know Jung was was very fascinated by those dreams and archetypes yeah. how do you How do you see the the work of dreams it, it's, a, it's, it, it's a topic i've touched on a number of times, and you know i I find it very fascinating because even in the english language and in a lot of the cultures we come from we we have these expressions which are very you know all of these expressions come from a real root you know i think that's why like etymology is so fascinating mm-hmm. too but but even even in expressions we use things like that's just a dream mhm or or a child has like a, a really big idea and someone will tell him almost like in a degrading way like no no you're just dreaming
1: right but you can also say uh he's so dreamy or mm-hmm. whatever you know there's yeah. still a a bright side to that um mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're very, we don't honor dreams in this culture. And in other societies, sometimes they do. I can't remember where it is that they, everybody gets up and shares their dreams the next day, all the adults mm-hmm. in the community.
0: It strikes me as a wonderful practice. I think the Shuar and the Ashuar do that. They, uh-huh. they, they, drink, uh, they drink a lot of uh, Wayusa, which is similar to yerba Mate. Uh-huh. And, and they, they, they recount their dreams. And the elder, I think it's usually the, the woman, the, the grandmother, yeah. she she then kind of interprets them and, and bases the day around that.
1: Yeah, which is a beautiful way of weaving in unconscious and consciousness, right? Yeah. So I think dreams, are, these, are, these are these gifts that we have that come to us for free. We don't have to pay for them. We don't have to take a course and learn how to dream. It just comes. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to practice to start to remember your dreams better A big part of that is writing them, having the diligence to write them down right after in the morning, the minute you wake up. I mean, I have dream journals going back 30 years, like Mm -hmm. stacks and stacks of dream journals. And I I have learned so much. Sometimes they're, how do I say, pre pre recognition of something occasionally, Mm -hmm. Uh, often reflections on a current situation, sometimes mysterious. It's just like ayahuasca. I think dreams kind of come from the same place that ayahuasca visions do, which is our unconscious. Which is not to discount the effect of the medicine, you know, or the role it plays, but they're so personal, right? How everybody's visions are personal. Mm. So, uh, what was it about dreams? What are we talking about?
0: I, I guess, like within within that Jungian way, how, how does mm. how does one? Work with dreams. Mm -hmm. How does one interpret them? How does one take whatever is being transmitted through that space and um, apply it to, we were talking about reality, but, you know, to to this reality? Yeah.
1: Um, Number one step, record them. And that opens the conduit so that you remember more and more, because quite often people don't remember their dreams very well, but I think you find if you start to write them down every morning that you start to remember them more and more. And this is something I've also found very handy in ayahuasca ceremonies, I will say for myself, Mm -hmm. because my capacity to remember things that happened, I'm not saying 100%, it never is, but I can remember a lot of what happens in the ceremony. I think through working on that cognizance. So you record them, and uh, over time you start to work. Say you have an interesting dream one night, and you want to work with it. So you write it down, and then you start to look at it. And uh, I don't know, just give me a little example.
0: Something. It doesn't even
1: have to be a real dream.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm 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 battling a, a demon, in or something something very scary. Maybe it's. Yeah. Anthropomorphic, or it's it's somehow oh, more ethereal, but there's some scary figure,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's
0: a fight. There's a
1: yeah, yeah. Which are common. Mm-hmm. Fight dreams are common for people. Um, then maybe starting to look at okay, what is this figure that I'm battling? And you can draw it or paint it or just see it in your mind's eye again. It's like working with a vision from medicine, right? What are the details of it? Can I see it in present time? If I get myself into that state, can I start to engage with it? What color is his skin, you know? Is there is there hair on it? What's he wearing? All the little details have information, you know? Mm. And in that way, you start to develop a relationship with it in your waking time. At night, you're battling with it, but in the daytime, you can start to get curious. This is the warmth and the curiosity that I was speaking of earlier, you know? Um... What does a demon mean for me? What are all my associations with a demon? Or let's say I dream about bacon. What does bacon mean for me? Why bacon? Why did this symbol show up in my psyche?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When it could have been, I don't know, prosciutto or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are really, really interesting ways to unpack the symbolism. And if you're into etymology, which you mentioned, you would probably really enjoy Uh the uh, detailed aspect of dream work like that so there are dream dictionaries but i don't really think you can just look up your symbols and get it but sometimes they're useful for launching a train of thought or something Mm -hmm. um ways to hunt down the meaning of this image for you and why did it show up for you personally and then over time especially with dreams, especially if you tend to have a similar series of dreams, like fighting or running away or whatever. Um, As you start to develop a relationship with those parts of the psyche that are unconscious, the dreams can start to change. And that's not something you're doing or making happen. It's more a spontaneous reflection of the shifting relationship inside of you. So, I mean, we could talk about dreams for two hours, (laughs) but that's a brief
0: response it, and then the idea of doing that work is when we go back into that space it begins to to change that space and other things can then come from that or, or also it's it, it's somehow giving us an uh, a deeper understanding of 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 our conscious reality as well yeah. through through the working with the yeah. Yeah. dream space
1: yeah because that demon dream or whatever is probably reflecting something in your current state it may or may not be an external situation it may be something you're carrying around from the past somewhere in your mind mm-hmm. and by past I mean not just this life either of course mm-hmm. but um, the idea being I, you know I think number one is so satisfying to have a deeper relationship with myself and I love the communications that go on with the part of me that knows, but I don't know that part, and then the part of me that doesn't know. It's it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And for me, that just makes life fuller and richer, and it makes being human more interesting.
0: Yeah. So then you mentioned plant medicine a number of times. How was, how was that... That journey. You mentioned, uh, like, when you were younger, you had worked with some psychedelics, and then we, we kind of started the, the podcast off with we had met working in a, a plant medicine center, which they, they predominantly work with ayahuasca, which is a, I'm sure most people listening are familiar with it, but it's one of the main Amazonian plants that it, it is seen as a plant that has a, a deep ability to heal us but then also a a deep ability to teach us Mm -hmm. um so what was the maybe what was that earlier work with you with psychedelics and then how did because you know then you went on this long journey of of Tibetan Buddhism of psychotherapy and then at some point you know later in your life you you found yourself again obviously there was some spark or curiosity to to begin to learn about this other way of working as well yeah
1: yeah yeah um I was doing LSD when I was 15, 16, just as a seeker. I was reading Aldous Huxley and William James and being very sincere about it, you know, watching the sunrise in the Chicago suburbs. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't the best set or setting in many places, those Grateful Dead concerts, but mm. there's always part of me is like, yes, I want more. I want to see more. I want to understand more, you know. So that was in my teens and early 20s, and then obviously when I went to Asia I wasn't running into psychedelics there for a very long period of time. And then I had children and I was a mom and all this, you know. But uh, then my kids grew up and left. (laughs) And uh, I think it was 2013 or 2014, I was in Hawaii visiting a friend and ayahuasca arose in my field, the possibility of going to a ceremony. I'd heard of it before, I was kind of interested, but... This just manifested kind of flawlessly, you know. So I uh, went to a ceremony. It was the only day- daytime ceremony I've done so far. It was in the daytime mm. with somebody who I think had roots in Daime and uh, had a vast amount of experience. And I, wow, it was so, I don't know what to say. It was so strange. <laughs> It was so unlike anything I had ever met or encountered before. I really met the plant that day, and she met me, and we had exchanges and communications. And I remember thinking afterwards, I don't know if I'm going to do that again. It was just so bizarre. But uh, I went back to Portland, and Ayahuasca Circle immediately arose in my circle of friends. <laughs> it was just manifesting for me. And I started drinking ayahuasca in the States, working with it myself. Uh, It was such a uh, profound and deep and balancing and meaningful experience for me because I'd done so much work with the Dharma and meditation and clearing my mind and stuff like that. But I was also sitting on a mountain of stuff from the past, early, early trauma. Uh, Some things I had known about, some things I hadn't known about, the medicine showed me. Over time, and I embarked on this process of clearing and cleaning and purging, realizing more and more of, "Oh my God, that happened too." <laughs> which is I mean, it's shocking, and it's sure it's disillusioning, but it's also quite liberating, I found, to realize that, oh my God, I've been carrying these memories around my whole life in my body, but I never could see them. And that explains this, 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 this. That explains why I see myself as, as a child in photos. I'm almost like, slumped and mm. just, just not a happy child, let's say. <laughs> mm. um, so Ayahuasca really started to engage me, and at the same time I started to feel like my private practice in Portland was coming to an end. I just knew I wasn't going to be sitting in that chair anymore for much longer, watching the person on the sofa, you know, but I didn't know what was going to come next. So I gave myself a year off. I closed my practice. Went to Nepal, went to India, visited. Came back, and then I went to Peru.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: one-way ticket.
2: Because
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to meet the medicine in one of her homelands, you know? And uh, I could see that there were things waiting for me here that I didn't know yet. And the medicine was very clear with me. It's like... I, you know, I got the message, I'm, I'm going to be taken care of.
0: It's all going to
1: work out. But I'm not going to get to know what it is yet. And what it told me was, the ship has to leave the harbor before the wind can fill the sails. just mm. a beautiful image, and metaphor, right? I had to leave everything. I mean, I kept it, but I left it, right? <laughs> I and mean, come here before the next act could get rolling. So within a week or two weeks of coming to Peru, I'd contacted Matthew at the temple, and we were talking about working together uh, around developing integration things. And uh, I came to the Sacred Valley two weeks into being in Peru, and the minute I got to Pisac, it was like... You know, within a few days, I knew I had to stay. Just all the synchronicities and the messages I was getting, it was like... I say it's like plugging into an electrical socket. (laughs) It's the way I felt, just like, whoa, something was so grounding for me there, here, Mm. and still is. That's why I'm here. This is six, seven years later, yeah. And part of it is the medicine, but part is also the energy of the Sacred Valley and this place and the Apus and the spirits that are here and the mountains, which obviously I love and have a connection with. Um, Yeah, so that's how I connected with... Peru and ayahuasca.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm just going to lower this a little.
1: Uh, I can see why.
0: What, What was that like when you began to work with ayahuasca? Because... I think so many people who come to it, it's, it's kind of like in a way their, their first endeavor into doing something like that, whether it's working with plant medicines or a deep self-inquiry process. But for you, you, you had had all all of this background in Tibetan Buddhism and psychotherapy. So what was, what was that initial experience like for you? the initial experiences? Was it, did you feel like it was just kind of taking what you had learned and, and Taking it to a a different level, or it was—it was just completely different. And you you, you mentioned this word, strange. (laughs) The first
1: time was strange, Uh, and indeed, it's all still very strange. (laughs) But (laughs) you get used to strange after a while. Um, I felt like the medicine was really happy to be working in my body the first time it was like I mean I met the medicine and it met me and I felt like it was inside exploring all my channels you know how it moves through the whole body and it it was like wow this is cool
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) you know that there was a lot of openness or awareness in there you know that it could collaborate with or I could collaborate with I don't know how to say Mm -hmm. and it I don't know what I would have made of it had I met the medicine in my 20s. (laughs) Obviously I didn't. I was, I think, 55, 54, 55, my first journey. And I'm just so grateful for all the work that I did before that made it more comprehensible, Mm. perhaps slightly easier. And uh, so in that sense, it was an accelerator of my process, which was already pretty functional. (laughs) But... As I said, it it covered a lot of ground that I was not aware of. Mm-hmm. Just going straight down on the unconscious and bringing up stuff that needs needed to be integrated. And uh, that is something I give I ayahuasca great credit for, and great I have great reverence towards it. From that perspective, I just see how it goes down, right down to the root of your being. In my case, the first chakra, and starts to bring up stuff from the unconscious. And when I do integration sessions with people, because I work as an integration therapist now, um, I'm always hearing about how the medicine's working with their system and what it's choosing to start with. And so interesting to note that, yeah, it usually has something to do with their intention, (laughs) not in a way they expected, but still, and also... It seems to be going down and bringing up stuff that they were not aware of or they were aware of it perhaps in one way but they're like oh yeah that happened and perhaps the impact of what happened was much bigger
0: than they recognized you you mentioned this idea and i think it's really interesting that like your your meditative practices were, were working like on this level and then when you began to drink ayahuasca it started going on on all this other level and it's it's something i've seen and it, it's it's obviously it's a generalization it's a stereotype but it does seem like a, a, a pattern i've noticed is very often people when they have a very kind of maybe intensive meditative practice they can be very skilled in one area mm-hmm. but there is a disconnect from other things and often it's almost like a wall or a ceiling where mm-hmm. it's like really hard for them to penetrate mm-hmm. through that um, and my sense is kind of, you know, like anything, it doesn't have to be through meditation, but anything, if, if we get so ingrained in any particular thing, then that's kind of how we begin to see the world. And, and if something comes along and shakes that, it's almost like, mm, I, I'm not sure if I want to go there. Cause that's, that's going to completely redefine then how I potentially look at the world. Right.
1: Um, And I think that can exist, that does exist to an extent, you know, that, whoa, this is going to shatter my paradigm, and that will be very inconvenient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although if your commitment to growth or healing is deep enough, you learn to give that up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because every time you drink ayahuasca, it shatters your paradigm, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it's not just a conceptual kind of block, like what you're talking about, but quite often there is trauma Mm
2: -hmm.
1: buried around here or here or here, Mm -hmm. and that the blockages that that creates or causes is not just a head thing of -hmm. resistance, or I don't want to redefine that, but an actual instinctive, perhaps old survival reflex that's in there. Like, I can't feel this, is perhaps what that person was thinking when they were a baby or four or 12 or whatever. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. afford to feel this because it will overwhelm me and I will die. And it's this amazing gift we have paradoxical gift with a curse you know as humans to be able to compartmentalize to be able to seal away unbearable experiences so that we can continue to grow up and survive but then quite often you know somewhere around the age of 29 or 35 or 42 or whatever we get to a wall where it's like I am i can't do what I'm doing anymore I need to turn inside and start to see what's in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I think that kind of work kind of... I won't say it requires it, but it's more e- more easily done, more gracefully done if we have that kind of commitment. I want to see. I want to know. I want to heal. I want to release this. Not just, I'm sitting on my cushion meditating <laughs> and, you know, oh, something pops up. Which does happen too, of mm-hmm. course. Just in meditation, right? Sometimes people have tremendous experiences of stuff coming up from their practice. But if you're a long-term practitioner, you probably got it down. Mm -hmm. So it's nicely sealed away.
0: That seems like a really important point, too, which seems like something a lot of us might not want to admit, but that the medicine is is part of the, the experience, but we can never remove ourselves. And a huge part of ourselves as you said is like do i really want this (laughs) you know it's one thing to 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 show up and and maybe to verbally say like i want this but you know on a really deep level like is this something i really want yeah
1: and and you it's hard to know especially when we're talking about ayahuasca or other medicines again what is it i'm asking for Mm -hmm. (laughs) i want to be free of anxiety (laughs) you know i hear that people's intentions. Okay, what does that really mean? The medicine offers them a lot more than they bargained for. A lot more than they expected. And I mean, this is one reason I bow to it and I love it because it's so powerful and so extreme. And so so vajrayana, <laughs> so so limitless, you know. But it's also certainly not for everybody. <laughs> and um I think that process of coming to commitment within yourself around yes I want to release this. Yes, I want to be free of this. That takes time. And that can take many journeys and different plants too. Because Dieta is another way I've found to really get to that point. And you can still have moments of doubt and, like, oh shit, why did I say that? You know, in ceremony. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it comes on so intensely. It's like, why am I doing this?
0: Can you talk more about that example you use? Like uh, someone comes and they say, okay, I, I want to get rid of anxiety.
2: Mm.
0: And ayahuasca then gives them more than they bargained for. What, what is like an archetypical way? Uh, obviously, the experiences can be so varied. But what is maybe an example of a way where ayahuasca may give them more than they ask for or or taken in a direction that's potentially getting at that, but yeah. that's seen in a, or experienced in a very different way? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So first of all, if somebody wants to get rid of their anxiety, I'm always a little suspicious because you can't get rid of something that's in you. It's more like, I totally understand not wanting to live with anxiety all the time. You know, that can be a good intention. But from what I have seen and what I hear from people, if somebody goes in with an intention, I want to be free from fear. I want to be free from anxiety. They are probably going to have a very intense experience of anxiety and or fear in that ceremony. Because ayahuasca, as I said, can go down to the root and start to pull that up. Um, and the root is in the unconscious. And it can be in experiences that you do not remember. And it can be, especially if these experiences are when you're a baby or pre-verbal before the age of two or even a small child, they're going to be chaotic and terrifying and overwhelming because that's what that baby or that small child experienced. That baby had no way of saying, I'm all alone and my parents aren't here and I'm crying really hard, you know, or, you know, many worse things happen, right, to babies. Um, so it's just so fragmented, you know, and then afterwards the person is left with, well, what the heck was that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I was think of something Gabor Mate said, which was uh, people come to him and say, I felt things I never felt before in ayahuasca. And he's like, oh, yeah, you did feel these before. You just don't remember it. You know, mm. It's buried somewhere in your past. And I always tell people, you know, the medicine is not doing this to hurt you. <laughs> it's, not, it's not doing this to harm you, although I understand it can be really, really difficult and scary, but it is in the interest of cleaning it out and bringing it to your awareness. And can you start to piece together what might have happened then? It's not totally necessary to have all the pieces, but it can help the mind, you know. Uh, And can you start to work with your body and your nervous system, perhaps, in some trauma healing ways, you know. I've trained in somatic experiencing. It's one modality I practice, although I don't practice it long term. Often I'm referring people out to therapists who work with trauma in the body. With the idea of helping to release some of this stuff that ayahuasca's brought up because the medicine will bring it up, but it doesn't like it doesn't usually remove the whole experience, right? Maybe occasionally you've heard of people like, Woo, the whole thing was taken from me in one ceremony, but that's pretty rare, right? Usually you're left with the halfway thing of like, I dumped it in my lap and now what do I do? <laughs> and that's what integration is.
0: Mm. You you mentioned this idea. Which I think is is really important. And um, before we started rolling, we were speaking a bit of um, this guy Amika because uh, uh, we both sat a little bit um, in in the ceremonies. And one thing that I think is really beautiful is there's this story. It's funny I have this uh, this mamba in my mouth and it's a little hard to talk. But there's this story of. Um, in 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 his in his lineage in his line they say that you know the 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 spirit or the essence of humans like arrived in what he would call the the primordial anaconda canoe Mm -hmm. and interestingly it also had all of these medicines and that there's there's actually an order like the the his people would work with these medicines. First was actually tobacco and then mambe, ambil, Murundi, which is like rape. And then there was the medicines, um, I forget the particular word, but it was uh, things like peyote, wachuma, things that really kind of open our, maybe one could say like our, our sensory perceptions like to this reality, to but, but mm-hmm. to what we can experience with mm-hmm. just these senses. And then beyond that, there's uh, Datora, uh, Toei, um, they call it, I think, Boracera, like the, the medicine that makes you really, <laughs> really drunk. Um, and then beyond that, there's, uh, I think you would translate it as like the Queens of Knowledge, which for them is uh, Jemaru, which is uh, marijuana, Yopo, which is uh, kind of similar to ayahuasca, but it's uh, orally taken mm-hmm. or... Yeah, I believe it's orally taken, and uh, not orally uh, nasally, the, nasally, yeah, <laughs> um, and and ayahuasca, yahe, and those are kind of the queens of knowledge, which they would say can take us to dimensions beyond this yeah. this dimension, yeah. and 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 a lot of profound teaching can arise from that. But but it's interesting because you know in a way all of those are complete medicines but they're all different like they they have a different place and they have a different time and they're used for specific things so if one person is sick with this they may get this plant if they're sick with this they would work with this plant and and so in that way because you mentioned that too you know you mentioned that there's many plants and that that, that you know each of those plants has a, a, an ability do you see any pattern for much like you were mentioning with with meditation like there's there's a beauty to it it works on very specific things and you mm-hmm. experienced a lot of benefit and then you found ayahuasca which you found began to work on other things we also had the blessing to to work with Iboga together and mm. um, I mean for me that that's just a <laughs> kind of without words it's it, it's a it's, it's a
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Masterful plant, but do you do you sense uh, you know like for example like ayahuasca that there are things that it's very beneficial for, and, and maybe other plants that you've worked with that you find mm. could be potentially good for other things.
1: Wow that that's a great question. I haven't thought about it, but I'll speak for what comes to mind most immediately. Um, uh, about ayahuasca, San Pedro, Iboga those are three that come to mind tobacco way. you've also well, certainly, in mapacho. With, yeah. yeah sure
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: um alright let's start with mapacho then because it was the first <laughs> plant in the canoe right yeah. and I'm so glad they were in the canoe with our <laughs> primordial ancestors um so yes I've dieted mapacho and we've worked with the same tabaquero and uh in the course of plant dietas and wow I have such respect for mapacho <laughs> I have such respect for all these plants but Um, mapacho for cleaning and strengthening and straightening um, the inner channels and the Mm. emotional body I was drinking it a month or so ago and I was just feeling all over again how it's righteous (laughs) the energy of mapacho is so righteous right it just puts you on this earth in your body as a human no more and no less it connects you it connects me where I need to be connected It. uh Shows me if I'm screwing up in any way. Um, I think you have a podcast about Mapacho. <laughs> that's apparently quite eloquent. <laughs> mm. So, um, and you have much more experience with it than I do. So, yeah. But, um. So Mapacho to set your feet on the path. I kind of like that, huh? Mm. But I'm a fan of drinking it, not just smoking it, and I. if anybody is going to drink it I would suggest they do it under supervision Mm. of an experienced tabaquero like yourself Mm. (laughs) Um, ayahuasca for emotional stuff the emotional body ayahuasca for bringing past traumas to light it's a tricky one you know because it's not as clear Mm. as either a boga or a san pedro for that matter Maybe that's why it's the furthest out in the canoe. Uh, And it takes some interpretation and it takes some perhaps experience or skill to journey through it successfully. I don't know if that's the right word, but without too much confusion or trauma. Um, But again, it's, it's something I have a very deep connection with and I'm so grateful to Ayahuasca for cleaning too, of course. It has the whole purgative component and sometimes I gather it's drunk in the jungle just for the purge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's what people need. Mm. San Pedro, Wachuma, uh, which I just connected with a few days ago again for the first time in a long time. Wow. For seeing the beauty of the world, the Garden of Eden that we all live in. Uh, For seeing God. (laughs) in all his or her many, many forms and also for connecting with the masculine. For me, I find it a very masculine plant and the first time I met it, it had cleaned out my father, my grandfather's, or my whole male lineage all the way back and I'd never known what it was like to be in a human body with a clean male lineage but San Pedro, boom, showed me that. Mm. So I often, sometimes I recommend to men I know that would be a good plant for them to drink. I mean, for women too. I love it but Something particularly uh, masculine about its strength. Mm. And um, Iboga, because it's so clear, <laughs> there's nothing like it, and so powerful. And as you said, it gets beyond words. But one thing I really clearly saw in my experiences with Iboga was how it can work with addiction. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. man, it just showed me my stuff like this, like this, relentless. Like a dog getting his nose rubbed in its poop, <laughs> mm. and it would not it would not let up. I had mm. to take it in so deeply the disgusting aspects of my behavior and these were not I'm not addicted to substances or anything. It was a different kind of thing. It was showing me mental patterns that I was trapped in, mm. fear and trauma, basically. Uh, but man is that powerful and I can totally see how if you have an addiction issue and you come to a boga and I don't know about ibogaine, it's a whole different thing right? it's a chemical and I'm talking about the plant but if you were to come to a boga in uh, an appropriate setting with the right support that you could develop such disgust (laughs) for whatever substance abuse you might be doing that you would
0: never ever
1: want to do that again Mm. that resonate for
0: you that's beautiful yeah yeah thank you for showing that yeah i found that very fascinating with iboga too is uh it was the 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 death ceremony and uh it was very fascinating It, it was it was all of these mental patterns that were like i thought they were done with yeah. I didn't think they were still there, yeah, and yet you I realized they were <laughs> they were still lingering, you know, yeah. and, and it was just, it was incessant, it was repetitive, it was, there, there was no way of, it, like you said, it was just right there, yeah. and uh, it was so fascinating just seeing those, and not just seeing them, it was, it was <laughs> experiencing them a, a, ad infinitum, you know, just...
1: Yeah. It showed me definitely how things I thought I had cleared out. The root was still there. I'd cut off the the top of the plant with certain therapeutic strategies and methods and EMDR and stuff like that, but there's still a root there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Ayahuasca goes really deep, too. I can't compare. You know, they both go deep, but yeah. in different ways. But I don't know anything that could, could go deeper than a boga, because it has that infinite vajra quality.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for me also, there was something very infinite about it. it just uh, incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of respect for that plant. Um, what was that like for you arriving in a center where they're working with ayahuasca and, and beginning to incorporate... You know all of your knowledge, and and what was that process like of finding like where they meet and what are the similarities? Because it's it, I, you know I would imagine it's also a fine dance of like because I think the more we work with these other modalities, uh, you know, and, and again,
2: mm-hmm. correct me
0: if if you don't agree, but there's something that's seen that's that's at the root of all of these that they're pointing towards. And and so how to, how to take these things and, you know, much like you said, like any of these plants has its purpose, it has its use, but there may be blind spots, there may be things where it's not addressing. So taking these other modalities and, and maybe, you know, I can help to aid in some of those other things. Right. So what is that process like? And then at the same time, like I would imagine there's a sense of being mindful of like not to, not to kind of cross too far and like... Overwhelm the 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 thing they're working with right. as well.
1: Right, exactly, yeah, because on a medicine retreat, like the three week program at the temple that I was working at, you know, they'd have they have a number of ceremonies, and it's an unfolding process, and the medicine is working even when you're not drinking the ceremony, of course, you know. Um, yeah, the way I looked at it was. There are so many practices that can be complementary to integration and support integration. And integration is a very vague word, so <laughs> maybe I should talk about that first. Um, you know, there's a lot of buzz about integration in the ayahuasca world and in the psychedelic world. We all know we should integrate. Not that many people are really clear on how. How do I integrate? What does that mean? Uh, so some things I like to say about that. Uh, integration and... In, One of my definitions is integration is the process of assimilating, of ingesting, of digesting the material and the messages that came up for you in ceremony or in your work with psychedelics. The messages, the information, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not, but how do you take that gift or the gifts that you've received and start to bring them into yourself so that they become real in the world? And that is not just an inter a talk circle after a ceremony. Like talk circles are great, but sometimes I talk to people and they're like, "Oh yeah, we did an integration circle." <laughs> <It's> like check. <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> I mean, an integrate a talk circle is one integration practice. There are so many practices, right? Um, journaling, spending time in nature, uh, dream work I list as an integration practice. Just paying attention to your dreams. Um, I have a list of 17 ways to integrate a PDF on my website. I'm not seeing it all right now, but mm. you know these are modalities. Uh, working with your emotions, working with your body, starting to bring your consciousness more down into your body is often a big integration practice for people who are quite dissociated. Sometimes integration for people for, especially the beginning, is just about cleaning up your life, right? And the medicine will tell you, or you just realize, I can't eat junk food anymore, I gotta quit smoking weed, can't drink, I've heard all these stories, (laughs) can't drink alcohol. Me, it was like I had to quit swearing, and it's still difficult, but the medicine was really queer. You can't say those words
2: anymore, Mm -hmm.
1: it's not the right vibration, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, wear this color, listen to this music, you know, we get these messages. And all that I lump into the category of how to build a sane life which can be the basis for your ongoing growth then so anyway all these uh tasks missions aspects of integration but what you need as an individual is unique for you i can't ever sell anybody here's your integration recipe you know write in your journal take a walk in nature every day and meditate (laughs) because they might need something totally different right um so that's something i found really uh wonderful at the temple and I'm continuing it in my work as an integration therapist and also with this integration course that I've put together an online program is drawing on all the modalities that I know all the tools I have in my toolkit from 20 30 years of working in different ways and bringing them to the ayahuasca world and being able to offer them to people and say hey here's how you can work with that dark figure you saw in your ceremony you know here's some ideas for shadow work right or here's some ideas for internal family systems or voice dialogue, parts work on the inside. Or sounds to me like you could really use some trauma healing work in the body. And I I recommend somatic experiencing for that. Or, uh, you know, it's so dependent on the individual. Because as Rick Doblin says, you know, Rick Doblin, the director of MAPS, he says... And he says this with LSD. He says, you're not just having an LSD experience. It's LSD in conjunction with your psyche. And I just take that with ayahuasca. There's never one ayahuasca experience that everybody has, right? It's working in conjunction with your psyche. So every single ceremony you've had is different than anybody else's ceremony in the whole world, in all time. Even though there may be elements where somebody says, yeah, I saw that too, (laughs) or whatever. It's still drawing on what you have uniquely inside of you. So integration is completely unique for each person, which is why it's hard to, you know, break it down into a three-step formula. But on the other hand, that makes it so rich.
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: what does this person need for support? What does this person need at this time? And what you need, it changes over time, right, with your work. But I, I just really believe in the power and the, uh, the significance of really integrating what we receive so that when we go back and receive more... <laughs> Uh, we have the capacity. <laughs> Otherwise, it can be like pouring medicine down your throat. And just, I had a vision once in ceremony, and it was not pleasant. Of all of us laying around like babies, going, "Give me more! Give me more!" <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> it's <was> very humbling. <laughs> um,
0: with your work um, as a therapist, and um, and and also working with people who've worked with plant medicines. Do you see, uh, you know, I completely agree, you know, and and I think it's a super important point is that, you know, no person's experience will ever be the same as someone else. And and that's super fundamentally important. Do you see common, would you say like common archetypes of why people are coming down, what they're looking to work with Mm -hmm. and, and then when they're finished, this idea of integration, like, how they can take what they've experienced and integrate it. it, and you know, also like, are there common things that you see that are happening in that plant medicine space? Uh, common things that when people reach out to you, you see like these are the issues that come up that that need to be integrated, right?
1: And there's a lot of questions packed into that so mm-hmm. <laughs> please help me bookmark those um first of all i will i will say that you know ios goes all over the world underground ceremonies and i get calls from people in ireland and russia and australia and whatever too you know so uh it's it's not just people working here it's all over the place and growing exponentially every year uh i see people going to the medicine looking f- uh, hmm. Um, so you said everybody, I said, and then you reiterated that everybody's experience is different, but still there's a fair amount of people who read about somebody's experience or they hear about it on YouTube and they kind of go expecting to have something in that vein. (laughs) I'm going to have beautiful visions or whatever, and then they have something very different. And, um, that's not to be, that's not surprising, right? But it can be disturbing, them why didn't I get what the other person had (laughs) Mm. because you don't have that person's psyche and I will also in that vein I will say that people who contact me usually have something disturbing or difficult that they want some support with Uh, confusing (laughs) uh, perplexing uh, or upsetting sometimes it's people who just want to make the most of their ceremony and I totally applaud that too you know I think I can absolutely work with that But often I'm getting the trauma-heavier cases, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Which are
1: probably not an accurate percentage representation of what actually happens. Because many, many people just have beautiful, beautiful ceremonies. But then sometimes they have beautiful ceremonies run out, and then they have a terrible one, and they're like, what went wrong? (laughs) like, well, you're starting to hit the nitty-gritty now, you know. Um, People, anxiety, depression, you know, the common plagues of the western world especially higher and higher incidents with young people especially nowadays with covid and stuff disrupting things Mm -hmm. but i think you know just general research shows that people under 30 are feeling more alienated more depressed more anxious more disconnected perhaps it's due to the advent of the cell phone and stuff like that um Mm -hmm whether or not they turn to plant medicine for that. But there's many people who don't want to do conventional uh, medications, and good for that, you know? Mm. So they turn to plant medicine, hearing that that can help, not necessarily realizing that it's not just taking the plant medicine that helps, it's the whole process that it puts you into. of really starting to work with where what are these feelings, where do they come from. I really hate the word depression in a way, because people use it for... All sorts of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Just,
1: I'm not feeling good. I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, I used to ask people as a therapist, okay, tell me about how this feels. What's the nature of this depression? And quite often, they're angry, or they're sad, mm-hmm. or they're afraid, or they're in a difficult life situation. That's not depression.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's other things that you need to work with. But the label of depression, and then the idea it's a chemical imbalance in the brain, that you take mm-hmm. a pill to cure, which, frankly, has never been proven... <laughs> Mm -hmm. is it's in the popular uh, understanding Mm -hmm. now and I I think it distorts people's sense of their own capacity and responsibility Mm -hmm. for responding to and working with their actual state of being Mm -hmm. which again is something I got from meditation (laughs) it's like whatever I'm feeling I bring it to the cushion Mm and I feel it right Um, there's something else about integration but what was it
0: yeah, kind of that similar idea of, of, I mean, you kind of answered it, but the, the things that, uh, that that people are coming to then integrate that back into their lives. So, I mean, I, I think, as you mentioned, the, the anxiety, the depression, the difficult experiences, are there Are there kind of archetypical experiences that you see that people have where, again, they label them as, as very difficult or bad or not good? uh that that you f- you find like those are really challenging things that somehow ayahuasca is is revealing to it, to them
1: yeah and i've had my own too you know mm-hmm. archetypes are are shared yeah i mean you know the death the death thing i'm dying i'm going crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> my body's completely dissolving sometimes for people which can be super scary uh occasionally the archetypal paranoid experience of this is a cult <laughs> <laughs> that probably we've all had a few times <laughs> somewhere along the way, and you've got to work through that too, uh, archetypes that come up. But, I mean, there's also the other side of the mother coming to you and holding her you in her arms or whatever, or connecting with the earth or the planet in a deeper way than you ever imagined that was possible, or seeing the beauty of creation. Or the love that you have for a particular person, you know, seeing that just shining, right? Those are those are all archetypal experiences, too. So I don't mean to say it's all dark, although I kind of specialize in working with the dark. Because <laughs> that's what people reach out for. But similarly, you know, the beautiful experiences, you can work to integrate those. How do you take that more deeply into your being, that vision that you had of the planet or of your partner or whatever, you know? How do you really weave that into your life so you're acting from the place of knowing that, at least more often. I won't say in every moment, but mm. more often, yeah.
0: Do you think a a big part is... You mentioned this idea... You know, it's something I I, I find, which is... You mentioned this idea of like uh, intention and expectation, and I think so many of us we often, if someone if someone reaches the point where they're coming down, paying all this money, taking off work, leaving family, going to a foreign country, like obviously they have a sense that something is missing or not quite right, or there's something they want to learn, there's something they need to heal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so obviously that that felt sense is there, um, but then this you know also this idea that it, you know it seems to me often the way these medicines have to work in a way is bypassing the mind that thinks it knows
3: mm-hmm.
0: because it, in a sense if we if we already had the answers. That doesn't necessarily mean we would put them into practice, but we probably wouldn't then be going to the jungle or something to look for answers. So, you know, in a way it seems like these things have to, not always, but especially some of these, uh, these more difficult things, it has to bypass the mind. And in that idea of expectation, like it has to bypass the expectation hmm. to, to shake us so that we can actually get to these things, you know. And the
1: expectations have nothing to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. They're just yeah. an artificial false layer on top. Yeah. But you were going somewhere
0: with that. Yeah, so when when these experiences happen and uh, you know I think there's th- that's also where a lot of this idea of like trust in the medicine, trust in the process. Mm. Now, that's not to say you can just take the medicine and trust, you know, there are a lot of things that go around that, the set, the setting, who are you working with the tradition? Like, is it a space that's conducive to that? Mm -hmm. Is there, are there not good things? happening? Should you trust it first of all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Or can you? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But saying, you know, let's, let's say you're in a good space, it's being done well. And then this experience comes up, which, you know, the person is labeling as bad Mm -hmm. and, and they obviously need help with that. Do you think a huge part is just having that person like almost that role of of like a shaman of being able to to work with that person and and simply put that thing in context with them because if we don 't have it in context, right. you know the mind can take it to all sorts of different directions. Yeah. And just simply, you know, having someone to reflect that off of and and like putting it in context, like saying, look, like I've seen this before. This is what's happening. This in an ultimate sense, it's good. It's, It's bringing up something. It's it may not feel good right now, but it's. I, like, I can see or I have a sense of, like, this is what it's trying to draw. Yeah. And that, you know, even something like that can be extremely healing for someone. Because if that's not there, then the trauma is just kind of, it's just sitting there. There's nowhere for it to go.
1: Right. You're in a black void and there's no meaning. And I feel I feel meaning is such a healing element for humans. We are mm-hmm. meaning-making creatures. <laughs> We're always seeking to make meaning. Sometimes we'll make a dark meaning out of a difficult ceremony. But as I also said, I don't believe ayahuasca uh, messes with us, I mean, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, but I don't believe that these dark experiences are usually there just to torment us or torture us. They're there for a reason. You know, they've come mm-hmm. up for a reason and that reason is in the on the path of healing and integration. So, for the person just to hear your sense of it, I think or my sense of it after the fact can be tremendously reassuring and help them get off that anxiety cliff i've seen that suddenly they're sleeping better suddenly they can just yeah but i also you know people sometimes beat themselves up because i couldn't trust it i fought against it i couldn't surrender and i'm like look trust comes with time right and trust comes from experience if i just met you jason on the street and i trusted you would be a little foolish, right? It Mm -hmm. takes time, it takes conversation. You'd be
0: more than a little foolish, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd be more than a little foolish, perhaps. But uh, it takes, uh, you know, repeated interactions to build trust, and I see that with medicine, too. Sometimes we can, how how do I say, borrow a bit of trust in a way, because we trust the person who's serving us. Like with the tovacera we work with, you know, like, man, I trust him so much. It got me through so many difficult experiences, because like, Okay, if he tells me I can do this, I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So sometimes the trust comes from the, or, you know, what we read about Shipibos or whatever, you know, it can come a bit from that. But, you know, I also tell people, don't blame yourself for not trusting. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You cannot fabricate trust, just like you can't fabricate forgiveness. Those are two things that have to arise authentically. Mm. And trust comes from experience, as far as I've seen, and forgiveness comes from grace. Mm. (laughs) But, um... And... You know, I also see people just... just, Yeah, I did it wrong. Beating up on themselves. I had bad ceremony. It must mean I'm a bad person. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Not directly saying that, but that's the underlying context, and I think that is so embedded in the framework of past trauma. Mm-hmm. that when bad things happen to us as babies or children, we take it on, we take it in. We can't say, my father's bad for doing that, because that would just be too terrifying. Mm-hmm. It must be bad because he's doing that to me, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes woven into our being. And um, that is one of the remarkable things I find about working with ayahuasca in particular is that it brings up and shows me trauma from the past and all the feelings that's created inside my body, and boy, those don't feel good. But over time, I have started to be able to differentiate. Oh, that's what happened. And this is me, you know? And this is my soul. And also the plants of dieta have really helped refine that process. So to get, and it's an ongoing process, but to start to be able to see all those bad feelings, I thought I was that, I thought I was that, that's not really true. I'm just another human on this earth. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I can be as clean as a tree or a plant or whatever I'm drinking. That's part of the process of dieta for me, is just growing like a tree, right? Towards mm. the towards the light. Yeah. So that is something I'm tremendously grateful to plants for that I did not find in either psychotherapy or Buddhism to this extent. Uh, at the same time, it worked with all my past experiences in those. For me is kind of like, boom, the final touch. <laughs>
2: mm.
1: I can't say that plants are the only way to get there, but it's something I really honor from them.
0: It, it seems like there's a lot of discussion now uh, specifically about trauma and, and how these plants have a, a tremendous, certain plants have a tremendous ability to help with that. Do you think... Because I often find, and I think you, you said it really well with eboga, you know, like for addiction, iboga seems, because of the way it works,
3: mm-hmm.
0: to be very beneficial for that. But it also seems to me that's not the root of what iboga is doing. It, it's kind of a byproduct. Right. It's an right. amazing byproduct. Right. And it's something that should be used and studied and worked with. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's a similar thing with ayahuasca is that that's not inherently the root of it, but mm-hmm. it's an amazing byproduct?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: or do you think that's just, that's part of the process? I mean, obviously we all have trauma. It's that, that kind of primordial Buddhist concept that there is suffering, you know, and we have this Buddha nature that we, there's also a way out if we're willing to go into that, um, I guess the question is, with ayahuasca, do you think the, because again, that there's so much talk now about trauma and, and, and how beneficial ayahuasca can be, do you think that's that's just like an inherent part of the process of what working with ayahuasca is and something everyone has to go through? And And what do you think then, if that is the case, like what is actually then the medicine trying to get at? I know there's a huge question and it's it's very personal but do you sense that you know, beyond all of these layers, and, and these layers you can't bypass them, right. you know they're there, they're, there's a reason they're there but do you sense there's something kind of encompassing all of that as well, that's also there to be oh, experienced? Yeah,
1: for sure, yeah um, so I don't I, I'm not sure I would say it's just a byproduct of it, you know, this kind of cleaning process, uh, rewiring process that happens in our energetic and emotional bodies through. It's not a byproduct, but I don't think it's the end goal either. Hmm. Clearly it's embedded in a larger, there are concentric rings of larger and larger contexts, can I say, or visions, or I'm not sure what the word is, you know? And it, it seems like, and again, this is from my perspective My personal perspective of work and the work I do as an integration therapist, it seems like many Western people start off with clean up your life. (laughs) Stop doing these bad things. Here's what happened to you in the past, you know, showing you so you can release it, cleaning out these old feelings from our body. And then, and some people don't have hardly anything at that level, right? They don't have a lot of trauma. Good for them. You know, they had good upbringing, stable support, secure attachment, not a lot of difficult things. I'm always amazed when I meet people like that. It's like, wow, what a blessing. Because <laughs> I don't meet people like that in my practice, but still it can happen, you know. But then as the the rings start to get larger, it's like, you, yeah, there are larger contexts to work in. And not, I don't mean to say all the work with ayahuasca is just about the person, right? There's collective levels, there's ancestral levels, there's karmic levels, there's extraterrestrial levels there's many different dimensions of it so yeah this is not a byproduct it's part but it's by no means the only thing
0: Mm -hmm. but it's kind of what we're focusing on today yeah you you mentioned um like the, the difference between Iboga and ibogaine, and iboga being the, the, the plant worked with in its its entirety, it's, its uh, the shavings of the, the root of the, the bark of a plant. And, and and then with that, there's all sorts of other things that come along with that, tradition, ceremony, mm-hmm. ritual. Uh,
1: right. And then ibogaine, which is delivered in a clinic in Mexico, and mm-hmm. pill, I don't know if it's pill or intravenous or whatever, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it just strikes me as a very different thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the interesting things you've done is, you know, you've begun to work, you, you've, you've trained yourself in, in kind of also this this realm of, uh, you know, uh, I guess it could be called psychedelic-assisted therapy or, you know, but this idea of working with things that, that may not be in... The way we 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 would look at things is like a traditional way of practice so this kind of more something that that in a way seems like a natural evolution and you know a big part of that is psychotherapy you know like that that component which is actually a very traditional way of working which Mm -hmm. is like the guide the the facilitator like someone to sit there and like and, and i imagine that's very similar to your practice but what do you think what do you think is the direction that that's moving in and and what do you think are the 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 pros of that and the cons of that Mm -hmm. because obviously all of these these plants they come from a tradition they come from a time a place a very particular context and yet so much of the way this work is moving in the world is through this more western kind of mentality of okay well let's how do we reduce this to the most simple thing possible, which is usually the chemical, the alkaloid, right. and apply that and, right. and have it work? Yeah. And it seems like it is working, you know, to some degree, mm-hmm. like there is benefit from it. But, but how would that
1: translate in the, in the context mm. of ayahuasca, of course, is a very good question. Also
0: and, very different. And yeah. the
1: whole juncture between psychedelics and plants, mm. Psych- there's all these words, right? In whatever, you know, but chemical or plant is mm-hmm. a thing too. Um, yeah, so I've I've taken the maps training for psychedelic uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for severe PTSD, and we're still waiting for approval from the FDA. But I'm, it's in the works. It'll it'll happen. COVID showed, slowed things down, but there's mm-hmm. such a need for successful treatments for ptsd which causes so much suffering and the clinical results of these trials that they've painstakingly put on are amazing Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh so mdma assisted psychotherapy can be incredible and i look forward to the day when that can be administered freely um
0: I think if, if I remember correctly, it was two out of three people were were cured of their PTSD. Oh yeah,
1: at least a sixty-six percent rate mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. yeah, which is
0: incredible. It I mean, is incredible that's... because
1: there's nothing exposure therapy doesn't do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> not at all. Uh, yeah, um, so I you know I saw this a few years ago. There's this huge wave coming into the West. I'm, I, okay I will speak as an American because I'm an American therapist huge wave of psychedelics coming in it's the second round of what happened in the 60s there was lots of research actually in the 60s not just free love and experimentation but lots of scientific research on psychedelics that all ended in the 70s with Nixon and then it was all dormant for whatever period of time and now it's you've seen all the headlines you know it's just it's coming on full steam ahead because we need this um so uh, psilocybin, uh, MDMA, ketamine, which I don't know much about, but it's already approved because it's legal. Uh, other uh, Potentially some LSD-assisted therapy going to be coming online, and I think in 10 years, the landscape is going to be very different. So I find it really exciting to be part of this, to be on this frontier. At the same time, I look at a uh, plant like ayahuasca that's so nuanced and so tricky in some ways and so mysterious there's a uh, a quote by somebody, a writer who talks about the dark light of Onishuma, the dark light of ayahuasca, and that mm-hmm. just describes it so perfectly for me. It has light, but it's not daylight like san pedro it's It's dark, yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't ever really see that being boiled down to pill form. <laughs> <laughs> and administered. I know they did some trials in Spain with freeze-dried ayahuasca in capsule form. Because
0: <laughs> isn't MAPS trying to, to do that? If, I, I
1: don't think MAPS is working the, with ayahuasca. MAP,
0: okay.
1: It's it, Again, it's complex. Yeah. yeah. I think they might have some psilocybin possibilities. Mm. Psilocybin is much more straightforward. Mm. It's not a mixture. It's not cooked. <laughs> it's just ground up. Mm. And it's not traditionally used in, ceremon- in contexts. Mm. You know, it's quite a, an elaborate... Um, well, could be a simple system, but it's very unwestern <laughs> to sit around together in a group and drink a brew <laughs> and mm-hmm. stay up all night and maybe sing or maybe go off and puke or whatever. Um, so given the understanding in the psychedelic world that set and setting are so important, set being the mindset, the attitude, and setting being the ambiance, the environment, I think that applies in spades for ayahuasca. <laughs> um... You know, I haven't heard of any clinical trials coming up to explore the clinical administration of ayahuasca. I think there's a place for it. I think there's a need for it. I know there are so many underground ceremonies already. (laughs) Uh, I look forward to the day when they can be above ground. And what I would really like to see is that it can be administered in some kind of of community context. Mm. I mean, there's a place for one-on-one ceremonies too, for sure but that ayahuasca is such a community maker, (laughs) and that's something I see about the attraction of it for people in the States, is, oh, suddenly I have a tribe. I have people who I share deep experiences with, and that Mm. can be half the medicine for people right there, because everybody's so lonely and alienated, right? Mm. Um, So I like to see it in some kind of community or group setting with some kind of spiritual element. Santo Daime might have some, I'm not saying in the Daime context, but that's kind of what they do, there might be things to learn from that. But I would also like to see it um, provided or combined with really good integrative support, long-term, I mean, this is the ideal, long-term integrative support, and in particular, support for healing trauma, because that's not just a matter of a few sessions, either drinking medicine or getting somatic experiencing. Trauma takes time to heal and a real understanding of what trauma is and how it impacts the nervous system and how that shows up in medicine work and how, we can, you know, with skillful work and skillful integrative work and skillful medicine work, the two can go together over time. That's a pretty high vision. <laughs> it's not easily administered. There's not a lot of money to be made from it, so <laughs> I think psilocybin will take the lead. You know, there's already companies trying to patent aspects of psilocybin therapy. And the idea being you can just go take a pill, sit with a the therapist, go off. I don't see ayahuasca being like that. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's room for all sorts of modalities and plants and uh, chemicals, for that matter. And it's super exciting to be on the frontier.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think, I mean, I know it's hard to predict, but you think like within within a decade, these things will be much more prevalent and um, accepted psilocybin and, and
1: MDMA yeah, mm-hmm. in legal context they're already working in Oregon on their format for legal psilocybin therapy we voted it in in Oregon mm-hmm. <laughs> they just got to set up a structure and Françoise Bourzat have you heard of her? She's
2: Mm-mm. she's a
1: French woman who lives in Sam she lives in California and she's trained with the I think the Maztec Indians and in the mushroom tradition for a very long time. She's helping to develop the Oregon program. Mm. So I have hopes it'll be really thoughtful and quality. Mm. And then that Oregon program will probably serve as a model for other places. So yay, Oregon.
2: <laughs>
0: mm. Now what do you think? I mean, like for example, I, I don't know her background. Is she a psychotherapist, or is she just she she trained with? Uh... She's
1: uh, she has a PhD in something.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> um, I don't exactly know her background, but she is very experienced and mm-hmm. very wise, and she has a connection with an ind- indigenous tradition that goes back a long way
2: mm-hmm. in
1: her own personal history. So she strikes me as. This may not be true, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of underground guides, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I honestly don't know if she ever did that or not, but there are people like her who are doing that, who've been serving psychedelic medicines for 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. and learning a lot from that, and there's a lot of wisdom there.
0: It, it seems to parallel a little bit uh, yoga, because it, 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 was, it was and it still is, uh, I think something that people take sides on and this Mm -hmm. idea of like, should, should one be certified in yoga? Should there be like a a centralized body that, Mm uh, authoritates, is that a word? Authorizes, um, like who can teach yoga? Who can't? What are the requirements? And on the one hand, I, I see that as very good, much like we do with medical doctors, like there, there's a process to go through and then eventually you get a piece of paper saying like you are qualified because mm-hmm. you've done X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And yet on the other hand, I, I think about, uh, I, I studied Ashtanga yoga for a while and, um, I, I studied with two teachers, but one was in Colorado, uh, this guy, Richard Freeman and his wife, Mary. And, um, He's not authorized, <laughs> and yet he has probably, in the U.S., the deepest wisdom of that tradition. He's been doing it for the longest time. Exactly,
1: and he probably studied in India for a very yeah. long time and got direct transmission or empowerments. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, a few thoughts on that, um, and there's a lot of discussion on that. You know, is it going to be limited to people with a license like me, <laughs> which would be quite because many people who are practicing underground or whatever. They're not necessarily trained in some above ground thing, but they have a huge amount of wisdom and experience. Uh what I know of the MAPS training for MDMA, they're looking at one licensed person on the team of therapists, but the other person could be a body worker or an acupuncturist or, you know, somebody a clergy member or whatever. You know, they don't have to be a licensed therapist, a person with a sincere interest in learning this. Mm -hmm. And also with the organ model, they are looking at not limiting it to medical professionals but it could be any person who goes through a six-month training Mm -hmm. that would train them in how to administer psilocybin and hold space for it, Mm -hmm. which I think is great. There's such a need for that. Mm -hmm. And why, you know, who wants to invest tens of thousands of dollars in some credential (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, just to do something like that? On the other hand, I can say from my own experience that what I've, from my therapeutic background and stuff is super valuable. Mm. And there's a lot to be said for that too. So I'd like to see a mix.
0: Mm.
1: And I think that can happen,
0: yeah. And what do you think, because again, it it seems like a a training program that there is a real benefit in that. Um, And then at the same time, you know, I would imagine six months and then you have a piece of paper, there could be a lot of problems with that as well, Um, you know, versus someone who has had decades of experience. Yeah,
1: I think the program's going to be set up in a way where it's not just, you know, multiple choice on the computer, but actual uh, discussions and groups, and you have a mentor, and you go through practice sessions and stuff, and also they will not graduate somebody if they feel that person is not. I would hope, you know, if they feel that person is not going to be Qualified that they would withhold that certification. <laughs> that was the way it was for my mm-hmm. school too. Um, but yeah, how do you create and grow a whole new culture? Yeah, yeah? Uh, and and break out of the medical model that has everybody in a box, medicine and I mean, as a, drugging people, you know. But still, train them in what counts mm-hmm. and what's important, which is how to sit with somebody and be with somebody and hold space for them and listen to what the medicine's trying to do and help, you know, help them in that way. I mean, how did you get your training, Jason? <laughs> I think it was on the job, yeah?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's interesting, I mean, because even, even in some of the traditions we've we've experienced, I mean, there is a very particular training, much like medical school, Uh in, ingesting plants. In terms going, of being going, a
1: curandero or mm-hmm,
0: a, yeah, yeah, going into diet, uh, fasting, meditating,
1: turning inside, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. The shamanic training, mm-hmm. which is dying and being reborn over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: But then it's 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 very interesting because um, w- when I when I finished a, you know a quite long training and I, I worked with some other traditions as well. It was very, I mean, some was actually the, the, the words of one of my teachers, which was, you know, I've I've given you everything I have, now you have to go work, don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's the best thing, <laughs> out the door with you. <laughs> and that was very jarring, because, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I had learned, you know, con- considerable a considerable amount, in retrospect, I think much more than I realized at the time, because right. some of it just takes time to manifest. But for the most part, I was like, I don't know what what the fuck I'm doing. Like, I mean, yes, I, I know, like, certain things and da-da-da, but, I mean, now I'm just supposed to go and, like, you know, heal people. It just seems quite overwhelming. So it was a little jarring, like, the, the don't come back part, because it's like, but I want to come back. Like, I have all these questions for you. And, <laughs> and he or she knew that,
1: I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> um,
0: but so that was part of it. But it, there was also, it correlated to a very deep sense of... Like okay, I've done all this work now on myself. my learning now is working with other people yeah and and that was very much whatever you want to call it, serendipitous synch- synchronistic of working at the temple and really going back in and working full time, you know almost without stop, you know ten months out of the year and
1: total immersion program
0: yeah, total deep immersion <laughs> For and, you, um, right. and because I found that's where also a tremendous amount of the the training was happening was you know using my own experience, and then how do I work with all of these other people
3: mm-hmm. and
0: and be able to serve them in a way mm-hmm. you know and and sometimes working with twenty three people it's a lot it's twenty three worlds twenty three lifetimes potentially of yep. stuff uh and you know how to do that in 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 the best of my ability, and and to do it in a skilled way. And um, there's n- at least for me, there was no, there's no other way to do that than than to, to stick my feet in the mud and, right. and to do it. And right. and I'm really grateful for that too. You know, the just the the temple, the the format, the the kind of non-stop work group in group out you know 23 people in 12 days 23 people out and how to how to really get those 23 people to experience like the best that they can experience to, to really go in and and get what their intention is and and, and often what they don't even know is is beyond that right. and, and 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 there really is. There's just there's no. At least for me, that there's no substitute for just you know. Do, 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 right. Do, do, there's, do, do.
1: No, there's no substitute. And a few things that came to mind. Let's see. Hmm. Um, at the same time, that doesn't mean that you couldn't have had a little training before you were sure. in it could For have sure. helped a For little sure. bit. I, For bet, sure. <laughs> I bet and I also bet that some of the training you got was just from talking with other facilitators and people the sure. transmission of experience For you know sure. which is often what happens in a teaching format mm-hmm. however that happens and you know it could have been okay to have a practice run or two but hey you got thrown mm-hmm. in the deep end, you know. <laughs> but I also want to say that yeah, you become part of the container for those people. You are holding those 23 people in your heart, in your psyche, in your in your energy field. And I mean, I always look at you guys and go, how do they do that? And then another group comes in and they just do it again. Because <laughs> I'm used to working one-on-one for an hour. <laughs> and then, okay, next. But it's totally different uh, energetically, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, just to acknowledge the depth and the sincerity of that work. And then I suspect it's something that, comes from your heart or spoke to your heart in some way and not everybody would have felt their calling or lasted as long as you have <laughs> mm-hmm. or ripened in the ways that you have ripened you know there's also a matter of uh, what's the vocation is the word right you know just the, the calling mm-hmm. this is right for some people and for other people it's like yeah they may think so but it really doesn't fit mm-hmm. and it requires the ability to really be with somebody whether it's one on one or in a group I guess and really offer your consciousness up while still retaining the clarity of your awareness. I mean, right? I'm just yeah, imagining absolutely. from my own experience, you know? Offering it up as a uh, ground for their growth, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever they need can come through you. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in, in so many ways in my own work, you know? And there's a Buddhist phrase for it... Uh, taming whoever, teaching whoever in whatever way, you know, manifold experience. Whatever is needed will come through at the right time. And Mm. I have constant moments of saying things. It's like, "Ah, where'd that come from? I didn't say that. I didn't think that. It just Mm. came through me, right? And I would imagine you have the same too, maybe?
0: It's very funny because sometimes I'll, I'll get a message from someone and they're like, you said this thing to me, and it's like it stuck with me. And like I said that, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. It's
0: like, oh well, yeah, that does kind of sound like something I would say. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I don't remember it at all. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, it's um, I don't know. Can we say shamanic work or spiritual work? In that you're the vehicle through which whatever needs to show up can be transmitted. Hmm. And you don't have to plan out every word or study every sentence or whatever. There can be a spontaneity to it that feels really good. And mm-hmm. that comes with time and experience again and trust that comes from experience. Yeah. Yeah. And you get better with it over the years, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that trust is huge. And, and, and that's that's very experiential as well. Is, uh, you know, as you said, like when, when a difficult experience comes up, it's it's different... You know, trusting in the way of like, oh, like I read that that's okay, versus, ah. <laughs> oh yeah, like I've, I've, I think I've been there. I don't know a hundred percent, you know, because again, we can never truly right. know. But it, you know, it, I feel
1: a familiarity with the territory you're talking mm, about, and to me, it feels like this, and yeah. yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. And it's you know, it's it's profound in that way. It's something that's very subtle, but it's you know, as you talked about, kind of these energetic fields, uh, the power of the word. I mean, there there's a much there's a much more powerful transmission, if I can say, you know, from a place of,
2: mm-hmm.
0: not like a knowing from here, but but a knowing of, like, it's going to be okay, like, it is, yeah. you're, you're fine, it's okay.
1: Yeah, it's got to be that embodied knowing that has that authenticity. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything,
0: right? Mm-hmm. There, there, you'll be okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that comes from your own experience mm-hmm. of being through those tough places. And... Um, yeah. yeah look you made it you know so yeah I know. kind of I'm yeah right. <laughs> well you're here <laughs> yeah, kind of <laughs> i
0: think
1: you're here <laughs> um the other thing that came up was yeah the learning that we do is i mean of course learning and studying and reading you know it's valuable at least for me i learned by like yeah. that but the biggest learnings i've had have been through my life experiences right and In particular, the biggest ones, the hardest ones, you know, that they distill down in an alchemical way to help create this open, willing field. Mm. Like, if I can show up for all the hard stuff that's happened in my life, I can sure show up for the person sitting across from me in the Zoom session or whatever, you know. Or I can sure show up for this difficult ayahuasca ceremony or tobacco ceremony Mm -hmm. because, what the heck? (laughs) I know that... uh, I know how to
0: show up. <laughs> that to me seems like one of the one of the really important parts of this plant medicine work is it it does shake us. There's more water too if you okay. if you want. It has a little holy basil in it. Um, but it seems, I mean, I, I was talking to to this guy Joey about this, and you know, before before we started rolling, you you came in. This is the first time you've been here, and you're kind of exploring the the place and. Uh, you know, saying, "Oh, you know, I recently got these like these these sheepskin rugs, alpaca rugs, and the textiles, and you know, a big part of that is is it, it's comfortable. It's it's aesthetically pleasing. It makes me feel at home. It makes my life, you know, a little easier. Like this heater, it yeah. makes my life a little more comfortable." And it, that just seems like such a natural beautiful part of being a human as we do we want our lives to be more comfortable we want things to be easier that's that's why we do work i mean that's the that's the basis of any investment technique is you know you you work hard in the beginning to invest so that you get to reap the fruits of the reward down the line and
1: if you live long enough (laughs) if you live long enough yeah
0: (laughs) but even that you know of course there's so much that's out of our control but you know to a degree like what food do I put in my body that's a sense of an investment and what what are my words what are my actions and Mm -hmm. but so in that sense, you know, comfort is, is a beautiful thing, but it seems like to me, one of the main, I don't, I don't know exactly what the word is, but one of the main components of, of any of these plant medicine rituals or, or esoteric practices is like taking us out of that comfort zone and, you know, to the degree we're willing to go and, and maybe sometimes to beyond the degree that. beyond <laughs> that, um, because as you said, you If we're able, and you know, sometimes we can't, we, we can't manage that. It is overwhelming seemingly. And yet in the grander scheme, unless we die physically, we, we come out of it. Um, Well, and
1: even then, where do we emerge (laughs)
0: into? And that it's teaching us in a way, like if we can navigate those spaces, then these things that happen in this reality aren't that big of a deal. Mm. You know, and they can be, you know, and, and life, I'm sure, will test us all. I mean, there's all things we have to deal with, death and decay and loss of loved ones. And But, you know, as you said, if, if you're in a ceremony and your body is dissolving into a million pieces and, you know, you're off in some random part of the universe... And then you, you survive that and you come back and your boss is yelling at you. And, of course, those same patterns are going to, the, 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 the adrenaline, the, the the anger. But if we can integrate that in a way and put it in perspective, it's like, oh, like, right. like who what, who right. cares? Right, like, right. right. You know, the it's either the like, line's too long at the <laughs> checkout, you know? Like,
1: <laughs> traffic jam, you know? Like, yeah. Of course, you learn this from living in Asia, too.
0: <laughs>
1: but... Uh,
0: that seems like such a huge part, and a lot of that is perspective. And I think mm. so many of these traditions they 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 point to this. And, and I, again, I've used this analogy a lot, but you know these things like vipassana to see something like it actually is Maya. You know that that we see the world through a veil. Apocalypse. You know it actually means it's not the end of the world. It's the end of the really? world as we see it. Yeah. You know, so to to take the veil up and to see the world as it actually is. And and yep. and one of the beauty of these these uh, these modalities is it, it 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 shifts our perspective in a way. I mean, even more of the the, the scientific work, it seems to be showing like there's neurogenesis, there's neuroplasticity. It's sure. literally like allowing us to see something from a different point of view. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's great that science can prove that changes happen here. But for me, like. I don't care (laughs) if there's a mechanism shown or not, because still it doesn't really show anything directly, right? Mm -hmm. I care about the... I'm a phenomenologist. I care about the actual experience, yeah. So, um, yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking how psychedelic and plant journeys can broaden our experience, just like traveling around the world can, or living in a foreign culture can, or learning a different language can, in a way. It really opens up... Possibilities and it starts to give you a different sense of what's important Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the relativity of certain things. Um, And just a respect and a humility for the mystery that we're in all the time that we just don't think about because I gotta go to the store and buy this and you know. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In that sense, it's deeply spiritual, and that is also something that people are seeking through coming to plants and psychedelics I think some kind of connection with the divine or what's greater and that's yeah they open up those realms <laughs> inside our heads or outside yeah they introduce us to that um and it's a very ancient tradition right if you go back to the mysteries at Eleusius and the potion that whatever it was that they drank in the cup there but uh the way that that shaped Greek society and the ancient Greeks. <laughs> they they would write things like, you know, whoever has gone through the mysteries at Eleusis has no more fear of death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what an incredible gift. And that's something I also think about through my own work with plant medicine. I mean, first with Buddhism and meditation, but then with plant medicine, it's like... I'm not saying I wouldn't object mightily if... <sighs> a tiger were going to leap on me right here, <laughs> like, I would I would object, you know, there would be animal fear. But there's an increased curiosity that has given me towards death. Mm. Like, wow, I wonder what's on the other side. Because I have a feeling it's just another journey. <laughs> and how many times have I journeyed <laughs> out of this body and then come back? And there's absolutely going to be a time when I journey and I don't come back to this body that happens for everyone, you know, so the um you know they're doing work with psilocybin therapy for people with terminal cancer diagnoses and also with their family members, mm. and they're finding wow, huge mm. reduction in anxiety, huge increase in peace after mm. just one session. Mm. the topic being death uh that's one of the many gifts it can bring
0: why why do you think that that's what's happening? That that, when someone even with one ceremony, <clears throat> I mean, obviously that's a very specific group. The stakes are very high. Um, what do you think is happening? That's that's allowing them, in a sense, to to be at peace with what is.
1: What they say when they come back is, "I saw the bigger picture." Is my word. <laughs> they might say something else. You know, I saw what lies beyond this reality, and I have, and I felt peace and comfort and love there and now I feel like I have a connection with it and I know I'm going back to I'm going to go there when I die <laughs> mm. whatever that means you know just it's not unknown territory anymore mm. and I think that's kind of what I'm saying too you know that these journeys with plants and medicine have given me a sense of the territory that lies beyond this body and becomes more intriguing a little less scary
0: yeah I mean, that seems to be such a common motif in, in any of these shamanic or esoteric traditions is this idea of preparation mm-hmm. for death.
1: Yeah. Don Juan, right? Castaneda, take death as mm-hmm. your advisor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so many Buddhist practices, you go sit in the charnel ground yeah. and, and look at the bones and meditate on the ephemerality of the body. Cremations. Yeah, and that's also very grounding in this life then, right? makes us be here now, because mm-hmm. this is what we got. Maybe many times over, or who knows, you know? But it's, you know, life wouldn't be the same without death.
0: Do you think there, were, in Tibetan Buddhism, there there was a, a plant medicine tradition that was lost? Because, uh, you know, certainly it seems that way, if, if you look at the little pieces in... in the Greek mystery schools, uh, mm. those seem to have arisen from Egypt, and Egypt is just littered with motifs of ceremonies, death, preparation, the world beyond.
1: Mm. And the
0: uh, Rishis
1: and the Rig Veda and the Amrita, or whatever, you know, Soma. the Indian Soma, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know, I think somebody recently came up out with, out with a book suggesting that, mm-hmm. about Tibetan Buddhism, but I haven't read it or seen it, and... In my previous past, I didn't come across any reference to it, but we're discovering new things about the past all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. It wouldn't surprise me. It's pretty wild.
0: Because like you were saying earlier, I mean, it is very shamanic, and, and I'm sure a lot of that uh, arose from the bone tradition, but just all of the different dimensions, the realities, the, the entities one can come into contact with, right. the archetypes, what they represent. Uh, it's, um...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but it's also true that these specific practices that they have and the teachings handed down through centuries and the practice of, uh, say, three-year retreat or you know, long-term retreat, definitely those open up new portals, <laughs> even without a substance, right? Mm-hmm. And you do journey to different realms, I think, and see things that would be extraordinary mm-hmm. by the measure of our ordinary reality, and you come out transformed, mm-hmm. so perhaps some forms of meditation are psychedelic also, or yeah. vice versa yeah.
0: what is what would you say has been the the biggest gift that the Tibetan Buddhism has given to you and and what what do you think it it has the potential to offer people because I think there 's a lot of curiosity. Yeah and things like mindfulness, buddhism, tibetan buddhism as you said. I mean it's yeah. It's it's kind of all over the world now.
1: Yeah. And also just the fact that if you start working with plant medicine for example, it's really beneficial to have some kind of spiritual practice. It could be one of many forms, but that I think is a top top integration recommendation I have for people. Uh the biggest gift tibetan buddhism has given me, um What, just one?
0: (laughs) (laughs) As many, whatever comes to mind.
1: Uh, The direct connection and grounding with a lineage that goes back over a thousand years. You know, there's a power and a strength and a dignity to that that I really respect compared to, I'll try a little bit of this and a little bit of that, which, you know, I did some in my 20s. Mm. But I felt there was so much more growth potential for me to put my roots down somewhere which doesn't mean I can't learn other things, but just, it's like a marriage, you know? This is my base. (laughs) I always come back to you, kind of thing. And the fruit of that over 30 years, uh, clarity, wisdom, insight, compassion, the compassion practices. And I will also say that when my son died, it was in Kathmandu, and it was all in the Buddhist context, you know, cremated there and supported by the lamas and everything and i don't know what i would have done without my meditation practice (laughs) because i wasn't meditating to forget about the pain because that wasn't possible it was more like i'm just gonna sit in his room and look at his crib on this cushion and feel this (laughs) with the container that this practice gives me and that transformed my being and really opened my heart over time in ways that I don't think would ever have happened otherwise.
0: So I'm really grateful for that. It reminds me, Amika speaks about this idea that in a sense, we're all as humans, we're we're orphans. He says we're orphans of time and space. Wow.
1: What a beautiful phrase.
0: Yeah. And and, and I often hear that... uh, people will describe that when they begin to work with plant medicine as like there's this sense of remembering
3: mm.
0: remembering who we are remembering where we come from mm. and and it seems like as you were talking about in the beginning you know nothing is ever stagnant things are always changing and and there's a beauty to that and but potentially one of the downsides of that is as we begin to to evolve we sometimes forget you know, like our stories which Hmm. you know even like for the tubu Amika like those stories are like the base of like everything right. it's like every time you work with the plant you tell the story uh. and in the beginning that was like oh man like again like, <laughs> <laughs> like we just we, we just heard the story yesterday like, you know. imagine how many times yeah. the plant has heard the story yeah <laughs> But I've really grown to see the power in that because it's not just, it's not just a plant. Like there's a story behind it. There's, and, and that it gives it context. It gives it meaning. it, It puts it, it puts it in a time and a place.
3: Yeah.
0: And, and this, this tremendous power and knowledge can arise from that. So It's just interesting that you say, like, one of the things that you feel like Tibetan Buddhism gave you was this, like, lineage, which Uh. was very tangible. And it seems like that's also something I see so much in people who come down with plant work is they feel, like, ungrounded. They Mm -hmm. feel like they don't have a home. They don't have something that's, like, that they can hold on to.
1: Right. And we we don't. I mean, as a culture, as a society... uh, You know, we're disconnected from our ancestors, from the planet, from each other, from ourselves, from our bodies, you know, all this. And I see that also as a reflection, again, of that word trauma in the collective sense this time. And that people like you and me from the United States or, say, Australia or whatever in particular, but also Europeans but particularly Americans and Australians, you know? We're so uprooted. We're so... Our ancestors came over whenever they did, and they didn't leave because they wanted a nice vacation, right? <laughs> they came because some really, really horrible stuff was happening. And they had to leave and start a new life. And there's strength and beauty in that, apart from what they built that new life on <laughs> at the expense of Native Americans. It's another layer of trauma. But... um there is so much trauma in our past, in my past, in your past. I mean, I have Irish blood. I've seen with San Pedro several times the potato famine, which I'm sure my ancestors came over after that. But I've seen, you know, the pain of not being able to feed your children, which is not something i felt in this life, you know. Or, um, you know, the Holocaust. Apparently I have some ancestors in that too, although I didn't know that, you know. Mm. But uh, where am I going with this... Um, Because of this undigested, unacknowledged trauma that can be six, seven, eight, ten generations back, whatever, going back to caveman days, for heaven's sake, you know, it's still in our DNA in some ways. Something Ernesto says, and I've seen this on Dieta, you know, and um, it breaks our connection with that lineage. And there's so much work we can do, again, with plants to clean that and heal that and repair that how did we get there? Something about people coming down and they're feeling disconnected. Oh, the lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're all kind of going around, you know, where's our connection? Where's the magic? I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try yoga, I'll try whatever, you know? And and those are good things. But I also believe in finding one or two places to sink your roots. (laughs) And a big possibility that Western people don't recognize is that there are indigenous Western traditions They're almost exterminated, they're pretty lost through Christianity and the Inquisition and stuff like that, but the pagans, the Gnostics, uh, alchemy, astrology, you know, these more hidden esoteric Western things, sometimes people find they want to sink their roots in that, or diet plants that come from the West instead of South America, right, stuff
0: Mm -hmm. like that. Are, are you familiar but well, I know you are familiar at least in some of those is that something you can talk a bit about is those more european esoteric traditions
2: yeah.
0: <clears throat> i mean I, I know you're you're familiar to some degree with astrology um what do you think the the roots of those are and and uh, like the the examples you gave are are they interrelated or they're, they're specific I'm sure, Lineages.
1: yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's so much I don't know because <laughs> there's lots of <laughs> because that's the way the world is, and it's not, you know, these haven't been my, well, astrology has been a main tradition for me for like 30 years I've studied and practiced astrology too, 30 mm. years, 25 years, yeah, and it's something I really, really appreciate as a language that speaks to me as a westerner i mean it's as western astrology
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it draws on the symbolism of the tarot you know woven into that and the symbolism of western magic not that i know a lot about that but there's something that feels very connective about speaking that language and of course the roots of astrology go back to what they say babylon but who knows you know Every time I come out here at night and I look at the sky and I see the stars, I'm like, that's the original astrological transmission, right? Mm -hmm. Because the stars are so bright here in the mountains and the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a wisdom tradition, and it feels good to be connected with another language through which wisdom can flow. Um, I've read a bit about pagans, ancient pagans, druids, Gnostics, which Christians pretty much wiped out, but they're a very interesting group of people. And I think there's something to be said for us as Westerners going back to the ancient roots of our traditions, which have been so almost eradicated, and just even doing a little reading or exploration to kind of connect with those ancestors and help revive or heal, revive that lineage or heal those wounds. Because Europeans have been so wounded, right, and that is also how Europeans, and I'm speaking of us too, as Americans or whatever, people of European ancestry could come to the new world and enslave people and oppress people and kill people, because terrible, terrible things were done to them in Europe, also.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because, like, the talking about etymology, the, the etymology of slave is Slav. Is mm-hmm oh wow yeah. and they they were the European slaves <laughs> I didn't
1: know that wow that's powerful mm-hmm.
0: so with with astrology <clears throat> how would uh, <laughs> I'm getting you to define everything, but like, <laughs> so many of these things you know again, astrology is something uh, it's like that's what you do. You you get the Sunday paper, and you look no. at your horoscope. No, and... <laughs> that's not astrology. <laughs>
1: that's just entertainment or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, astrology is really the art and science of looking at the synchronistic, I like all these words, the synchronistic juxtaposition of the planets in the sky at a certain time. And I won't say the effects it has on Earth, Right? Because I don't know of a causal mechanism. How could Jupiter being in Leo affect whatever happens at the time? It's too far away. It's not big enough. We don't see any waves coming from it. Science at the current moment can't measure any physical effects. That doesn't mean they don't exist, mm-hmm. right? It just means science, the instruments are not precise enough. But the way Jung described it was an a, a causal synchronicity. It doesn't have to be a causal mechanism. It can be a synchronous mechanism. This arises in time and this happens here, right? Hmm. These two things happen and this is a language that you can learn to uh, interpret and speak and you never end learning it too. So, uh, you know, exploring one's own natal chart is usually the best way to start with that and getting some deep readings by good people who do not just give you a printout (laughs) from a computer but actually do the work of creating a personal uh, exploration. And it's always great to start with yourself because presumably that's the person you know the best, but still not well enough. <laughs> so there can be many, many things to learn. I remember a friend came over and did my chart and my husband's chart, uh, you know, a long time ago. And I was just like, wow, there are things here that I never acknowledged before. Hmm. Or that explains this aspect of my character or his character that I don't have to look at or judge as bad or wrong. It could just be, well, this is the way the energy goes.
2: you know.
1: Mm. So it can create self-understanding and a lot of respect, so a lot more compassion sometimes for other people. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about psychological astrology. I just find it so fascinating. But the sun sign columns in the newspaper have nothing to do <laughs> with it because where you were born, the date and time and place of your birth, that's unique to you. If you're a twin, even if you're a twin, your twin came out a few minutes later, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if you were born in New York City, a certain date, place, and time, and there's three other people who have a similar or identical chart, you're all going to be living it in different ways.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah? It's not imposed from the top. It's more like how you as a soul want to come through the matrix of what you've been given in this life and, and live it. So, I find it fascinating. Uh, sometimes with ayahuasca, it speaks to me through astrological symbolism. It's just another language, and it's um, yeah, it's a great thing on the path of growth.
0: It reminds me a little. You know, we live in an interesting time where, like, we we speak a lot about diversity, and and how beautiful that is. Uh
2: huh. But yet it,
0: it seems like. <laughs> Often the narrative is not diverse at all. It's like you you have to think and believe this, or you're outcast. That's right.
1: (laughs) We're gonna diverse you right out of (laughs) here.
0: Do Do you think? I mean, this is just kind of coming to me. Do you think that that's maybe one of the beneficial things of something like astrology and and birth reading is like recognizing like oh like we are different like like by birth by the nature of who we are like we we tend to to gravitate towards certain things. We think in different ways. We have certain powers. We have certain weaknesses. Going back to Amika, you know, that's a big part of his teaching too is that we all have a role. Yeah. You know, and and it's also based just on that, like when you're born, like how you're born. uh, Yeah. And that... Again, uh, so much of our suffering seems to be like, "Who am I? I don't have a role. I don't have a tradition. Right? Uh, I, we live in this amazing time where I can do anything. Right? Like but what does that anything? mean if I don't know who
1: I am? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's so true. I really like what you said at the end. You know, because yeah, we don't know who we are. We're free to do anything, but what does that mean? We don't have gender to tie us down anymore. So, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? um incredible freedom and opportunities and also incredible rootlessness and suffering, right? And so self, self-knowledge, self self-study, know thyself, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think is an ancient truth that still applies and astrology is very much something that's helped me know myself, both the challenges I have and the imprints and the difficulties and what I need to work on and grow with and, and the talents and skills that I never... Thought before that was something I had to give, you know. Yeah. So I love doing natal readings for people because it just really opens things up, mm. and I'm very interested in the potential confluence between astrology and ayahuasca, mm. you know, both as paths of self knowledge and growth.
0: Right. Mm. So where do you see? Do you see where do you see where do you see yourself uh, going from here? Do you do you have like a vision of? how your life is going to begin to unfold, how you incorporate <laughs> these things. Is this your work or is it just something that is a part of your life? Is it, do you have any idea where where it's moving?
1: I feel like there's a direction and I'm being either propelled or guided in that direction. But, I mean, I never planned the life I have now in the valley. I didn't plan this. I did, Ten years ago, I would have been like, wow. <laughs> I'm still like that, you know? I just kept following step by step where I felt like I was being led. What can I say? Mm. And yeah, I feel like the medicine brought me here. (laughs) I got to do a lot of personal work in the last six years that I've really needed to and I'm moving more into the phase of like, okay, I wanna give, I wanna give a little more and I'm really feeling called back to spend more time in America. Although I'm still gonna have a base here and live here, but It's time for me to bring back more of what I've learned here to the States. Mm. And I'm so excited by plant medicine right now and this whole path that I'm on, but honestly, 10 years? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't plan these things anymore. They just, they come. Mm -hmm. And it's a real blessing. And there's a huge satisfaction in seeing... All the elements of my past, including the difficult ones, come, you know, being able to bring them together and use them in support of people's own growth and process. Mm. It makes it like doubly or triply meaningful. Yeah, like recycling those nutrients <laughs> into fertilizer mm. that can fertilize other people's soil. And then that process keeps going, I guess, yeah. alchemy. Alchemy, totally. It's all very alchemistic what we're talking
0: about. Yeah. Well, beautiful, Carrie. We're we're coming up on uh, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> is um, is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to to talk about?
1: Um. The only message I'm getting is that. Um, plant medicine is amazing and beautiful work and it deserves to be approached with respect and humility and that doesn't mean you have to dress in native costume or follow native traditions. It's more really a matter of coming from your own heart and showing up for that kind of work with um, authenticity and vulnerability and humility and curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's really the fundamental message I'm always giving people. It just depends on how you show up. And everything else can come from there. So,
2: yeah, that's
0: all I got. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This uh, this was wonderful. I I didn't have a, an exact plan of where this would go, but uh, we, we touched on some really, really beautiful topics and things that I'm very interested in, and I've I've I really learned a lot. And thank you so much for sharing. You, yeah. you have a beautiful way of expressing and kind of bringing these things together. And I, I really hope... Uh, that this gets out there and, and people really benefit from it. And
1: people watch all three hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation and the back and forth.
0: Yeah. And if people are interested in in getting in touch with you, if they want to learn more or work with you, how, how can they do that?
1: Yeah. My website is ayahuascawisdom.com. And I have a blog on there. I write about ayahuasca integration and sometimes other plants. Um and I talk about my, yeah, there's information on -on one-on-one sessions with me. I just do integration work now, so I don't work long-term with people, but I do one, two, maybe three integration sessions, or preparation sessions, primarily with ayahuasca, but other psychedelic experiences, welcome too. Uh, Yeah, there's also an integration course that I've developed called Integrating Ayahuasca Program, and info about Mm -hmm. that is on my site also. Ten weeks of articles, videos, exercises, resources to support people in their integration. And a lot of it came out of uh, things I developed for the temple. So, mm. yeah.
0: Great. Someone actually just reached out to me uh, looking for a female integrator. So I, I will pass your info on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Carrie. This is beautiful. And uh, thank you for your time and for sharing and, and everything you do. And, uh and yeah, we'll, we'll get this out. And like I said, I, I hope some people reach out to you and, and, and just that this information continues to spread. And yeah. that, that was a big part of creating the podcast was just to give voice to, you know, to people who I think are doing really good work. And right. as this work begins to spread to, to get voices of, you know, groundedness and reason and uh, people who are coming from a, a genuine place of the heart. So
1: yeah. Yeah. thank you. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm really happy to be a part of it. Thanks mm-hmm. for providing this place.
0: Yeah, (laughs) thank you, Carrie. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carrie. I, I very much enjoyed it myself. Um. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, if you're able to support the podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to, to do this work and to bring on these guests. Uh, Patreon is a really good option. There'll be a link in the show notes to that, but it's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, you can subscribe and you get back uh, really nice benefits, things like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. Um, and it's a really good way to give and, and to also receive something back, kind of this very... Uh, especially here in the Andes, this uh, principle that they call aini or reciprocity. So that's a really big help to me. Uh, To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I I really appreciate all the support. Um, There's also the option of donating directly via PayPal. Uh, there'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, uh, simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help with the algorithms that the show can get out to a bigger and broader audience. Also feel free to leave any comments or questions in the comments section. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, because that's still the biggest platform, uh, subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating and a review, that's a really big help in getting the show to a bigger and broader audience via the audio version. So that's it. Uh, I'm not sure the exact order of the following guests coming up, uh, but as always, I hope to continue to bring on really fascinating guests for you all. So thank you very much. I appreciate all the support. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you all on the next episode.